Just nobody heard that. I was whispering. I didn't even hear that, and I'm sitting next to you. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what I said was, welcome to the Crash Chords podcast. Oh, okay. Um, hey, yeah, the light's on, cool. Yes, the mic light is on. We are on the air at the glorious Studio 2J, a gag I'm stealing from the Epic Podcast. And Schaefer can yell, out, yell at me about it next month. I wanted to believe that was original. I really did. Well, you know. Anyway, um, welcome to another <laughs> week of the podcast. Um, there was something I wanted to bring up quickly in the beginning, but I have lost my train of thought. Shocking. Oh, um, I recently got to do a bunch more interviews for autographs. We keep them coming in, so I'm excited that the uh, that series is going well so far. By now, you've heard our fourth episode with Cool Z, indie rocker and rapper, um, which was a blast to talk to. Um, he was the first and only guest I've ever interviewed on a gondola or gondola. My gondola. And explain it, a gondola. This is a, a, a for for skiing, right? Yeah. Okay, because I originally assumed, and many listeners may well assume, that he was on one of the canals of Venice. No, because he says he's in Colorado. You like trains. Okay. You should have immediately went to a type of train car. Train like, car? Yeah, there's a train car. It's, it's called a gondola. It's a basically... But it's a suspended. Then it's a tram, really. It has more no, in no, common no. with a, a gondola, tram than a, a train. A gondola is a boxcar with the top cut off. It's just basically a big bowl for stuff. In fact, it's commonly used to carry both coal... Junk, rocks, sand, any sort of stuff that you just want to pile in and then dump out. Cool. You're junk. Junk. Yeah, junk. That was actually a lucid uh, explanation. Yes. Yes. In fact, there's... My faith has gone up to maybe maybe 51% now. I'm breaking even. That's right. He was 35, like, about 10 minutes ago. That was before the red light went on. But the light's green. The light is... Our audience is colorblind. Wow. We should hope our audience is colorblind, actually. That, that, that's I know. I'm trying I, to convey. Yeah, I know. Yes, yes I understand right. what you meant. Well, maybe because Asshole. we're a, uh, an audio casting instead of a video casting. I know. We kind of pigeonholed ourselves, right? Yeah. We, we yeah. kind of got away with being colorblind. Well, no, it's the light's now purple because it doesn't really matter what color it is. They can't see it. See? Now you're playing along, eh? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well um, done, gents. Well done. Um, anything else you would like to discuss, Storm? No. Okay. Let's get into this week's album, which was my choice. Um... So, the album is by an artist named Damon Albarn. It's uh, his uh, solo record, Everyday Robots. And I want to talk a little bit about Damon Albarn, who most of you might know either as one of the... I, th- I believe he plays both bass and sings in Blur, which was his first huge band. You'd know them for Song 2 or more commonly known as the Awuhu song because everyone only remembers the chorus, even though I happen to remember the whole song. Um... He was also, in the early 2000s, very well known for teaming up with the, uh, one of the Tank, the tank Girl creators, uh, Jamie Hellett, for the Gorillas, which were a virtual band, finger quotes, um, because they don't really exist in the physical space. Um, they're animated. Um, so I want to take you back to a story of how I first got into Damon again after I had known Blur but kind of fell out of touch with them. So early 2000s, I was uh, babysitting my girlfriend at the time's little sister with her, and she had gone up to put her little sister to bed, and I'm sitting just watching MTV back when it was still sort of relevant. I'm flipping channels, and this music video starts, and it's a cartoon. And it's got this, you know, slow drum and a bass line. And then I hear this whiny, high-pitched singer who sounds familiar. 
singing that he's happy and he's feeling glad he's got sunshine in a bag. And at this point, I don't know what the hell I'm watching. There's uh, anthropomorphic people who look like sort of like gorillas, and then there are actual gorillas. Then there's a drummer possessed by a giant ghost who's rapping. And I watched the video to the end because I didn't know what the hell was going on. Turns out it was the gorillas and their song Clint Eastwood, which spiraled me right into getting into the gorillas. Um, and the animation is sort of in the anime style, correct? Similar, yeah. It's uh, Jamie, I think, was influenced by that, and he also his his artwork resembles. Um, he did comics, and he did. Um, there's a band called Mindless Self Indulgence. They have an album called Frankenstein Girls Seem Strangely Attractive. He did the cover art for that. It was one of the first albums he'd really done major cover art for. You would and actually. I think that's actually style. as as a um, as an album cover and just as as figures of the band that are meant to represent the band as a whole. I think it was one of the most successful because I think everyone had the same sort of perk of curiosity as you who is this what are they why yeah. is why is there not a band in the place of where these animated characters are and when i went back and researched it at the time i was like oh it's damon i know damon from blur and i was very invested at that point um gorillas have had many albums now at this point and now damon has decided to do a solo record he's a very talented musician this is the thing i wanted to sum up this intro with so on this album specifically damon plays 10 instruments 10 that he's edited together himself. Piano, guitar, the Omnichord, which is an electronic music device, um, a ukulele, drum machine, which can be considered an instrument, bass, he sings in the choir that's on here, though that's more vocals. He obviously is lead vocals, his own backing vocals, but he also plays the Korg M1, which is a keyboard synthesizer sound machine combo, as well as just a plain synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Korgs, Korgs are, are high-end. Yes. <laughs> Lots of people should have a Korg in addition to your regular digital piano synth. So, clearly he is a very, um, a very talented musician. He has access to a lot of different skills and talents. And it comes through in the record. I mean, I think that the as we get into it, the fact that he was able to pretty much streamline the gorillas, of course, with other artists doing vocals and, and helping with instrumentation or mixing and DJs, you know, but the gorillas and a lot of Blur's writing was very much his work. And this album is all his work. This is all him. He had collaborators and did some sampling, but this is mostly his efforts. Yeah, he did have some help, for instance. He yeah. did have uh, Brian Eno is featured in a couple of tracks. As right? well as... Um, uh, Bats for Lashes, otherwise known as Natasha Khan, is also featured on one of the tracks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. I mean, for one thing, it's the success of the Gorillas that I'm sure enabled him to 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 garner all this support and all this um, helping out. But either way, he's still an incredibly uh, talented musician. Who there was there was I had every bit of confidence that you know this was at least going to to leave me with some impression that I got after uh, my favorite album by the Gorillas, and that was Demon Days. There definitely is some crossover. I remember uh, when we introduced uh, this this as as this week's interview last week. John mentioned that that it could be overlapped or it could be un un. What was the what was the word you used, John? Do you remember that? I've got no idea. He doesn't remember anything. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, either undiluted. Over, yeah, undiluted. That's exactly what it was. That yeah. was what you said. Undiluted. Probably exactly what it was. Uh, it you could, you just, can take my word. That's what it you said. It could be just the core of what his ideas are. His idea, his, exactly. his choices of mixing, 
his choices of instrumentation. Oh wait, because that would mixing... be that would be diluted. <clears throat> no, it wouldn't be diluted. It would just be him. It's undiluted. It's not any interaction from any other. Well, it's producers. diluted. Diluted with respect to the gorillas. Oh. I'm 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 losing. <laughs> is there a sieve somewhere here? Like what, it's pared know. down. It's Thank thinner. You. It's the core essence of what uh, I suppose inspired much of the gorilla's work, and it's interesting because I had never heard what he had done on his own. So, that brings us right into this album, "Everyday Robots," which is, is the title, and is also the first track. Also the first track. Now, it was immediately clear to me that this is a little more of an, a fluid artistic style than his work with the gorillas in general. It's very texture heavy, and it has these chillingly evasive chords, this chillingly evasive progression. And sometimes the driving progression of this first track can feel comfortably pop-oriented, akin to sort of the worldly anthemized tracks that the Beatles introduced in their late period. Think the solemn but unifying tracks of their late period, like Hey Jude or something. You can find it in the downward progression in this track, and it kind of feels as if the track is about to reel itself back to its home key, C major is if that was the home key, but it, it's evasive in the sense that there's great care here never to fulfill that need for the home key. So each time we hover around G, the five chord, instead of pull, pulling down comfortably to C, it usually lingers and slides itself up to a B diminished chord, like, kind of like a suspended question mark. It's too smooth to be full of tension, but it's enigmatic and unfulfilled, and I think that defines this whole track very well. That is also presented with the choice of having... Well, we're pretty sure it's a violin uh, to be a screech work, a screech beat work. We're both getting ahead of ourselves, though, because we completely skipped over the introduction to the intro track. I was getting to the first intro, oh. uh, to that, because that, of course, is the, um, that, that's connected to, I think, the Damon Nalburn that we know, because there was a lot of soundbite work all throughout the Gorillas, and we find that right here, up front, <laughs> which is just a simple quote, which we, we determined to be a, a quote by Richard Buckley. Correct. Who was a, a comedian, well-known... Uh, In the 40s and 50s. British comedian, 40s, 50s, throughout the 60s. And uh, the quote, very simply, is, They didn't know where they was going, but they knew where they was, wasn't it? And then a and laugh of the what audience. That means. Yeah. So... I suppose it speaks to the... Uh, no, no, no. They know where they were going, but they didn't know where they were going. But they knew that where they actually were wasn't where they were going. Yeah. yeah. That is the full continuation. And That's the explanation. Idea of the that the Which is it, kind it, of I mean, a nebulous it, it, idea in and of itself. It embodies the sense of, of not having direction. Yeah. Which is, is, I think, characterized in the music itself and in that, in that sort of evasive chord progression. Yes, well, and also... It knows the, where it is. The song lyrically is about, essentially, people so reliant on technology, they aren't aware of where they are or where they're going. They're lost in this haze of being on the phone or being in, involved in what's in front of them and well, not being aware. Even further than that, it's almost like... Uh, he's almost explaining the isolation that comes with all this technology that we have in our lives. Uh, just, just the idea of being so in-depth... Uh, not in depth, in introverted into what's in the palm of our hands as opposed to, you know, talking to the people standing right next to you, which is by no means not a, a new idea, but it's kind of a new idea for music itself to really approach that. Well, that I think that exactly what you're saying right now is sort of that unfulfilled. Um, I would define it as, I would define his vision of it 
his approach to it as being delicately uncomfortable. Because I, I, there's a familiarity. Obviously, we, we grew up in a society with, with technology surrounding us, and there's a familiarity to it that we sort of can't separate ourselves from it. But there's this unfulfilled nature that always lingers in the background, uh, a sort of question in our heads, are we missing something, or some, sort of, some sort of truth to humanity because we are still living in the now. And I would say that the, his choice of instruments actually do a lot to speak to the illusions that he makes in just the lyrics because the piano work can double as the idea of tapping upon the screen. The percussion is just the heavy beat work of life and those violin screeching are just the interruptions of your Facebook status. And that's what There's I wanted so to return to. There's so much imagery just in those instruments. That's how, what, what I wanted to return to. I mean, I, I think it's, it's up in the air as to what you could... Uh, as to what you could characterize that violin screech as but it, it is clear that that's part of that sort of delicately uncomfortable feel because it's beautiful in a way and yet it's it's this persistent loop just a high register violin that 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 trills into the one non-scale tone on this entire track that i can discern at least and that's an a flat it just hangs out there as yet another question mark a question that keeps asking itself over and over throughout the entire song and even the whole phrase has this sort of hesitant urgency about it, this crescendo that builds up to the trill, and then it just fades out of it. And you hear this over and over and over again, just every measure or so. It's, it's, it's chilling in a way, and yet you can't help but be tuned into its beauty. So, again, I don't want to get too close to the theme work of this album quite yet. It's way too early, especially for the average listener without knowing anything about this album. I suppose to, to dive into that. But these are definitely foreshadowing tools at his disposal. Yeah. And they're very well utilized. I think this was, one, this was an excellent opening track. Well, it's definitely one of the best, in my opinion, opening tracks that's also a title track. I mean, unfortunately, with title tracks, I feel like there's a lot of expectation, especially if there's a title track in the middle or the end of an album. This is the name of the album, and it's also a song on the record. So you, you assume it's going to be very impactful to the entire arc. And sometimes those title tracks just fall short because of that over arc. Whereas here, I think it really fulfills the exact idea of everyday robots and kind of gives way to that. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the one uh, verse that he says, Everyday robots just touch thumbs. Swimming in lingo, they become stricken in a status sea of one more vacancy. See, that that's is, where you really kind of get into that's, the technological that just hones element. it in yeah. right there. It's 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 great uh, double entendres with uh, the choice of words, just to paint the imagery that he's going for. It's it does a great solidifying effect, and I love the way he trails off his inflection on those fourth lines of each of the verses, which well, just gives that little glimpse of humanity. It's that pacing he throws yeah. in there that's just great. Well, and this is a po great point to talk about also his vocals. Because if you listen to The Gorillas or Blur or any of Damon's solo work, if you saw Journey to the West, which was the show that he had done with Jamie that was playing in Brooklyn, I don't remember where. Or uh, the variety of compilations and, and guest spots he's done. You know that his voice has this kind of smooth ease to it. It's very... It's effortless. It's, it's, it sounds almost like he's not even singing at all, but it just effortless. comes out. I don't want to say that it's effortless. I want to say it sounds effortless. Well, of I'm course, sure but I don't. Work to it. Of course, there's work to it. I mean, in in terms of inflection, there's work to it. But it's clear that he's not just singing out. He's always singing down. Yeah. It's always more matter of factual than it is this sort of grandiose statement. Almost. A lot just, of times, he just 
really has to speak and it comes across as sounding musical. I don't think that's 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 any form of uh, a vague insult to just presume that someone's natural inflection is musical. It's, a, it's one of those compliments that just is. Um, and, and I think that's one of the greatest strengths that he's always had. It's what made 2D, the character that his voice represents in the gorillas, stand out so well. Even the character is very bland because he's a zombie, essentially, is the character. That kind of mellow inflection gave him character because he, he was this easygoing personality but had this kind of mellow cadence mixed with certain songs gave this vastness to the emotionality of it and he conveys that here in songs on this record as well well the, the usage is very appropriate just because of the fact that his voice is naturally comforting so yeah. it puts you in a comfortable or at least familiar place yeah and that's what we are we are familiar with the digital age so it's it's not a place that's going to unsettle us fundamentally unless we start really thinking about the existential implications of it all and that's where you really get into the intriguing stuff the the uncomfortable element as i said delicately uncomfortable element that he throws in here with the violin with um actually just straight up in the first the first tone of the track right after that uh right after that sound bite the first tone sort of hammers out that tritone, which is the, the, the core of the diminished chord that, that returns to later and later, which is the closest thing you could even pin to the key of this piece, which almost implies that it's in Locrian. But again, I wouldn't go so far with that. Either way, it's implied. He stays away from the most comfortable zone where you would expect this piece to turn at every, at every corner. And I think you get a sense of that even in the next track. Well, I want to talk about just one more thing, and that's the string accompaniment. The final, oh, right. the, which is at the, the very end of the second violin, because yes. that second violin did not replace the first piece. It uh, instead it complements it, it. It tried to harmonize with it. Mm, tried. They to. were separate. The 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 screeching violin that had been throughout the song continues throughout the tail end of it, the middle tail end. But there's an actual violin in that solos as well that adds a dichotomy and really shows the beautiful breath of the violin playing, which... Well, let's be clear here. I believe that was a string ensemble. It's, it's yeah. very, very di uh, distinct from, from the, the screeching violin. That yeah. One is used as a sound bite. It is probably looped. And that, as I said, is rec the recurring mo motif of this track. Whereas the string ensemble is just this gorgeous element that I think brings to life that sort of existential question of where are you in this digital world? Yeah. And it's it's... The key word to use here is just taste. It's very well orchestrated. It glides right along with his KG progression here. And it it comes across as one of the anthems that I, I stated earlier, the kind of anthem that you would expect to drive from from really classic, uh, long-lasting names like the Beatles and their more uh, personal works like something. Right. Or Hey Jude, say. Anyway... It's an interesting premise, a very interesting premise for this album. And from there, we will go into the second song, and that is Hostels. Which starts with a soundbite that ends up being looped throughout the track. That ends up sounding fairly musical, but the best we can surmise is, because we don't know for sure, it sounds like a dog barking on a loop. A hostile dog barking. I interpreted this as a few things, and obviously this is the, the fun game we get to play without actually, you know, being in the studio and perhaps never being able to know it 
could be just that. It's a, that's one of the first impressions that I got. Another thing that was thrown around was the possibility that it's uh, taken from, from sliding down a guitar, sliding down the guitar strings and mm. the, uh, the, the steel work as you go down the frets tends to make that kind of grating sound. Obviously, no matter what it is, it's, it's put through uh, several different filters and it comes across as a very hollow sound that yeah. could sound metallic or even wooden at times. And it gave an overarching hollowness to the song because it was constant throughout it and the rest of the instruments mixed with it but never overshadowed. It played the same role as the violin in the yes, first track. Absolutely it did. Now that's yeah, it. Just to add dissidence. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the only part where that dissidence is coming in. The the very light piano work that is sprinkled oh, we'll, throughout there. We'll get to that because that doesn't appear until until uh, later. I want to talk about Tell just about this the opening chorus. Yeah, well, if you could even call it a chorus, there's a there's a sort of repeating loop here. But I just want to begin uh, with this opening verse, which is a sort of cycle in of itself. Because apart from these little grating sounds here and there, this is a much more open and, and, and accepting song, I think, than the first track. It's slow. It's deliberate. It's really quite a bit thinner, and it's driven by uh, an acoustic guitar that really only implies just three major chords. The minor one, the major three, and the major four chord, which, which the major four is major because it has the raised sixth, so that means we are definitely in Dorian for this track. And the guitar for these three chords just simply seesaws between the first and the third intervals of these chords. But now, as with every simple progression, the one thing that often keeps things interesting here is a unique cycle of these progressions. So there are moments we're going from having a single chord progression uh, encompassing an uh, entire measure to suddenly having two chords in the measure with the percuss percussive accent doubling as well. It can kind of throw off your natural counting of this rhythm. But we are in 4-4 four, four, and we can typically count 4-4 four, four in our sleep. But when something fools us, it wakes us up. And this track is indeed fooling us. It never leaves 4-4, four, four, and there is a cycle here that lasts for eight measures. The first measure, you get just the minor one, the entirety. The second measure, you get just the major four for its entirety. The third is a half-and-half half deal. There's two beats of a major three and then two beats of a minor four. The four beat, I mean, excuse me, the fourth measure is all the four chord in its entirety. The fifth measure is half three, half one. The sixth is the minor one in its entirety, and the seventh and eighth are both all the major three in its entirety. So the deception here comes at the end of that cycle with a little mini progression within all of the stuff I just said, which is three, one, four, is suddenly broken. And that's where this track carries a similarly unsettled tone as the first track did, because we break that cycle and it throws off that counting just a little bit. It's a marvelous use of how three simple chords can be intriguing and enrapturing in their own right. Well, it's a very big advocate for simple doesn't mean boring. Bingo. Um, and also on top of it, both of these songs emotionally convey, because I forgot to bring it up in the first track, a comfortable numbness that we will see in other places on the album, but very apparent in these first two tracks. This idea of being very comfortable with falling into being an everyday robot, robotically I, moving through life. I Pink would Floyd actually, would be intrigued. I would debate that in this track. In the first track, I'm definitely on board with it, but in this one... The the fact that the guitar is so close to the microphone recording it uh, keeps it from just being numbing. The light piano, the very, very simple piano work that's being thrown on top of it, while it does seem innocuous, 
feels very ominous when you get down to the core of it. We, uh, the core of it. It feels. It feels like there's some sort of pressure being put onto okay. it here. So well, that comes in. The, but, that comes in the second section. Just to to go chronologically here, we get this next section, which is sort of an A prime. It really is much of the same cycle that we just had, albeit albeit thickened up by kind of a pedal function down at the bottom end. But we have the synth. We have a background choir now, and then yes, we also have that high register piano, which loosely crams in about six sets of triplets over the course of the 4-4 measure, or simply two sets of non-uplets, if you will. Non-uplets. Non-uplets. That's, that's a new word for me. Yes. I don't think I've ever had to use... Well, if you know your prefixes, I bet you could figure it out. I would <laughs> I would agree with John in his uh, amendment to my emotional statement. However, I will evolve it by saying that the first track is a comfortable numbness, the second track is an unsettling numbness. It's still There's still a hesit- uh, an air of numbness, but it's being... It's being broken down by this almost eerie, unsettling feeling like you're starting to come out of it because you're starting to be rattled a bit. But here's I think, the question, no, no, just no, to bring wait. that back to this piano here. Do you think that is caused by the piano? Because I, I felt that that almost was a little bit innocuous, as you originally said. It's just the the way it, the piano is accenting with those triplets, If it, it adds pressure very, very lightly, just a little bit of an undertow. It's not... I, it's. I mean, it's color. There is hostility it, it really here. is just there color really, at its core. But there is hostility here. It's not just that pure numb. It's. You're getting dejected. You're feeling. It's. It, it's becoming almost a depressive type of feeling. Well, I have one proposal, and that, it goes in line with why I felt the need to break down the rhythm of these little piano uh, broken triads. I mean, non-uplets is if you're counting it strictly, which would be two sets of, of, of nine over the course of a 4-4 measure. Mm-hmm. It's very rapid to the point that it, it almost is besides the point. It's color, so sometimes it can strike me as arrhythmic, and I think that has a purpose here, and that is the fact that when you do something arrhythmic, it has, it has a human character to it. It has this, this personal factor, but it also is, it breaks free from the norm. It breaks free from what you'd expect. It breaks free from from uh, expectations. In general, I think that goes in line with the, the sort of technological element here, and that's one reason why you may find it so pleasantly eerie. Okay, I could get on board with that. Okay. <laughs> Seeing as we're agreeing. I don't yeah, really have and- an argument for that. But I do feel like this song also is a really good setup for the next one. I feel like the way that this song progresses, the, the hollow, meta- the hollowness and the metallicness of it, of the sound anyway, kind of, I felt, well, worked really well for what we moved into. Let's go over one more thing here, because this track did have one other section to it, and that was the bridge. The bridge is a very important section of this track, and it does tie into to what you're about to talk about, and that's the transition into the next track. The bridge is interesting because of the fact that the piano, it starts in the five and it walks its way down the entire Dorian scale here, which is very intriguing because that's a break from this this cyclical pattern that we've had over and over and over again. Meanwhile, the string accompaniment here is even stronger than it was in the first track. It is, it is breathtaking at this point. It's one of those examples of just superb voice leading from one chord to the next that so that despite the sort of slow, simple downfall, the strings just make each step along this line shimmer. 
it is a breathtaking transition. And yes, we do go back to the cycle, I believe, once before we get the ultimate transition, which is a, a speeding up rhythm, correct? And that speeding up rhythm, I think, is just these pulses that get faster and faster until we are firmly in the next track. Or am I mistaking something here? Was that the no, next track? No, no, that's how the transition plays along. And that is for Lonely, press play. First off, I'm, I'm find this title very endearing. Well, it very much speaks to music culture that we all relate to, this idea that if you're lonely or if you're anything, essentially, just press play. Just listen to music. It, it can. No, no. It's not about music itself. It's about media in general. Oh. Video games, movies, television, all that sort of stuff. Fair. When you're lonely, dive into something to numb you. This is once again re going into that numb theme. Okay, I want to interject to correct here. I do believe the transition that I'm describing is from this track into the next track, so I'll okay. hold off with that. Um, if oh, you yeah, had yeah, any yeah, other, other the, comments... Yeah, you're right, yeah, that was, Mr. Tembo. We're going to get quite a change as we go into the next track so, here. So, but, uh, uh, Matt, you mentioned that there was a transition here that you felt worked perfectly into this track, and since I cut you off, I want you to explain that well, further. Well, no, I just thought that the way that the, the Hostels kind of uh, deconstructed itself towards the end worked into this track because this track also is fairly mellow in its start. It does deconstruct, that's that's true. And and the thing about Lonely Press Play though is I don't know that it's a numbness necessarily. I think it's an escape, which can be numb. But I think that, it's more yeah. about an, that's, a, about that's escapism. Better. That's much better. That's much better. This song represents escapism. And me as a child, while most people would sit under their covers in the dark with a flashlight reading a book, I would be sitting under the covers with a flashlight so I could see which button on my Walkman was the play button. <laughs> and I would sit and listen to music. Really? By that age, you hadn't just, you know, had the feel for it? Known, known where your thumb was supposed oh, to be? Oh, I had used my Walkman so much I had worn off the actual uh, print. They didn't have indented buttons. They were printed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, on my first Walkman, anyway. Um, but, you know, this idea that if you're lonely or if you're ha sad or if you're happy or depressed or whatever, but in this case, it's if you're lonely, press play, escape, go somewhere else, whether it's a video game, a movie, a, a book, a, a song. And this, this song also does something a little bit interesting on top of just the theme work. It's the percussion here is, has a texture that is so endearing Yet also comes off as a little foreign with a kind of a pop to it as you're going along. That's, well, that's, that's right, really, really, really disconcerting to some extent. Well, it, it does leave you feeling a little unnerved. Well, there's two things going on, and that's what you're, the two things that you're noticing are number one, the bass. And the bass is kind of the driving element of the song. I mean, he's playing around with rhythm in the bass, and that is true. This is still a very minimalist track, but it, yes, it's still very texturalized, and that's the second thing, what you mentioned. But first, just to get the bass out of the way here, the bass carries this very steady rhythm that's a very simple cycle that just repeats over and over again, where it just plays in the one, the and of the four, and then the one again, the and of the three, and then the one again, the end of the four and the one again and so forth and it just proceeds over and over and over again but it's this nice little halting rhythm that's very easy to just kind of groove right into i was gonna say it felt very engaging because it was kind of simple to get into yeah. get into the rhythm and predict it yeah you know? not as cagey but then along with that we have that number two element and this is the this is the um the exploration of texture which is really really strong here and this is what i would call a a, a delicate ensemble of alleyway percussion yeah. Lots of little oh, pops yeah, 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 yeah. just going that's, that's on and really on. Good. 
It really feels like a few members of Stomp just decided to join in for the little shebang at this moment. Not that it's very, you know, over overruling, but it's 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 groovy in its own way. It's using um, very raw tones, though, to create that groove apart from the very reliable bass. And that rawness is what keeps it from being just a completely settled groove piece. Indeed, it still keeps your blood a little bit high. Uh, so that you, it, this is not a fall asleep kind of a groove. This is something that you're like, you're still waiting for the other shoe to drop as this is going along. And then you add in some of the texture, once again, with the piano work. Once again, you, it's, it's being dispersed throughout it. That's the it's main thing I want to get in here. It's, it's that, the texture of the piano, um, shying away from the really lightness of Hostiles, here it's, it's complementing the melody, I think, a lot more. Yeah, it does complement the melody. At the same time, we have a lot of uh, comping going on by the instruments beneath this melody that, to be honest, overshadowed the melody a little bit for me. And that is the piano. As you said, the piano work really is... It has a genre shift as far as I'm concerned in this, in this album, but I think it was totally smooth. It's the kind of thing that goes in line with this somewhat dim view of the world as we're building it at the moment. And I, I honestly thought it was pretty jazzy. I could see that. The piano, it was incredibly jazzy at this moment, like smooth nightclub-level jazz. But it's an even simpler array of, of chord motions that builds this, this jazzy progress. It's just, as far as I can tell, it's, it's predominantly the, the, the minor one to the major seventh. And beyond that, th there was just all these little scattered, you know, bits and, and bites, you could say, that, that compose the elements of those two chords. But it's the playfulness that you expect to go with jazz. A little bit here, a little bit there, kind of as this ever-present color throughout the entire piece. So you have that going on the side of the percussion with the little alleyway instruments, and then you also have that going on with the piano. The only thing reliable here is the bass. And that did leave me feeling that this track got just a bit scatterbrained by the end, because I was loving the jazz nature, but I think this is one instance um, here at track three, the first instance where I felt the chord progression may have held it back. See, and I'd be inclined to disagree, not with how you feel about it, obviously, because it's your feeling of the song. However, I would incline that it was a lower point in the song. I, I was really driven by a lot in this song, but mostly the lyrics. I mean, the chorus, if you're lonely, press play, which is the final line of the chorus, I really connected to, mostly personally, because as I just told a story about staying up late and listening to music to escape, I can relate to the song very heavily. And so, while I understand the musical issues that you have, I personally connect to it on an emotional level, which, as I've discussed, brings me can bring me a little further with something that may, quality-wise, lack a little bit. I think I'm going to be on, on, on Matt's side here. I'm especially happy with the actual pacing of his vocals in the chorus. I think that's what held everything together, that kept that jazzy element from really escaping what was already being built, what it was being built upon. Uh, it, it kept it unified because he, the, the stutter and stop and stutter and stop of what he's doing, the breathiness of, the, of his vocals, allows the track to breathe and get interesting with you know experimentations and texture but it still unifies it it still keeps it cohesive enough to keep it from unraveling 
I think that Jazz Nature was reined in enough with his vocals to keep it from from being a negative. Um, all right, that's an interesting interpretation. I, I, I gotta say, this is where I was at here. The most interesting thing for me was the jazzy element because it was new and because it was just so moody in its way. But after it got a little scatterbrained, I will admit that the vocals became sort of my second go-to. And once I went back to those vocals, I am right there on line with Matt, again, when it comes to that line, especially that specific line, when I'm lonely, press play. It is this escapism that we've defined over and over that I think kind of defines this track, and it, the moodiness, I, I suppose, is artistically intentional in this regard. I don't dispute that. But I do know that when it comes to... Uh, when it comes to tuning something out, it became a little bit harder to get behind this because of the fact that I know that very often when you're pushing play, that form of escapism can be just as healthy in as much as it is still escapism. Often it could be inspirational, which then brings you to the next point in which you're actually out of said loneliness. So, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that I felt almost was, was diminishing the effect or just presenting it in somewhat of a more destructive manner than I was able to get behind. I yeah, wanted it's... more out of the music, and let's just say if the jazz had kind of kicked itself up a notch, then this song may have ended up reaching a more positive level for me. I know that's not its intention, but it's just funny how that one little quirk could have turned it into something totally different for me. In the end, I was left sort of wanting on both ends. In this case, I don't think it would have been appropriate, only because of his equation of technology becoming a form of drug, becoming the new drug of this generation, of, 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 of blink feeds and updated statuses and YouTube videos and this, that, and the other thing not being as constructive as it can be, as being inspirational as it can be, but becoming a drug. I and this is this is a major theme throughout the the album itself of of and I'm going to start going into it now how technology is sort of isolating and destroying society to some extent quote unquote destroying but mostly just breaking society apart well I think also we're at a point where we're we're only still starting to wrap our brains around our data intake we are not designed to, or we weren't at least designed to take in data the way we are, constantly being connected. And in fact, that's why so many people burn out or get overloaded on constant contact to this stuff. But at the same time, we're also changing the definition of what humanity was meant to do anyway Absolutely. on a daily basis. Absolutely. But I feel like that's the reason why so many people sometimes burn out is because they're sure. just not capable of handling a heavy data intake. No, I follow you. But, you know, well, here's the thing. Th this is more of those, it, it's kind of a thesis sense of, of, of concept album where there may very well be people who come along and say, well, oh, I don't agree with this 100%. It's a take on humanity that can be disagreed with. Yes. Whereas many things are coming from a very personal standpoint. And I'm not saying this album isn't coming from a personal standpoint. It's, it, I'm sure at many points, this reflects the way he feels. And that's not to be disputed. It's just funny how little musical, uh, little musical moments could make me take the the message in a different manner. 
that, that was my uh, my experience at this point. There's still plenty of positive things to say about this song and the album in general. For instance, third track in a row here, strings are utterly beautiful, and the melody itself is still very, very sweet. I guess my, my only problem with this track was sort of the lack of development. It helped artistically, but... Um, Again, it, Im it implies things that I think could be disputed had different choices been made. It's a little roundabout way of saying it, but I'll leave it at that. I will say, though, that I did find a connection here that I didn't see initially coming upon escapism. I get now track four's placement, and you can argue this later, but I want to at least make my point. So track <laughs> four is Mr. Tembo, which is a very groovy narrative. It also it's sort has of an Afro-Caribbean bash of sorts. It also has a little bit of history. This was a uh, an actually an elephant named Mr. Tembo that Damien met while overseas. Um, it was a recently orphaned uh, elephant that had wandered into an aerodome. He kind of wrote this song as a fluke. He introduced this song to his producer, and he knew it was he was gearing it towards more of a kid song than anything else. But the producer liked it, and he liked it. They flushed it out. And it's sort of the story of this lonely little elephant that doesn't know where to go. And so this song is an escapist story. That's the connection I'm making. The reason I feel like it has a place on this album is because the following track after this one is very rooted in reality. The previous song talks about escaping, and this song is the escape. That's where it fits in the narrative of the overall arc of the album. It, it This song starts with you know, it, it is very gro groovy. It has kind of a few pop tropes in it, but it utilizes them well. Um, and yes, it's clearly a story. You can tell from the minute it starts that Damien is telling a story uh, about this elephant. Um, I enjoy also that right after the first verse, we get a choir. And not any choir, but actually a choir from Damon's hometown of uh, Leighton. It's the Leighton Stone City Mission Choir. And uh, they're featured in this song and a song later on in the album as well. And, I mean, choirs are those, one of those things that can be tropey, but I really like a beautiful choir. I mean, and it, and it really adds to the childish hugeness of this narrative that he's trying to convey. More like the, um, the universality of it all. Yes. And obviously, if you're equating the same human condition to uh, the condition of elephants, then um, it, it better be pretty universal. Yeah. So, artistically, yes, this all makes sense. I do believe this is, this is going to be a hard one to get behind if you don't know the story about the elephant, but that's why we uh, have research. And incidentally, perhaps to bring up a point from my last, uh, my last little rant, this would be something that would be fairly impossible if we didn't have the technology by which to do this and look up these very things. So, uh, that's a little bit of a, a, a snag. Yes, Either when, way, you, when you're taking this from a musical point of view, it's kind of an oddball, to say the least. Yes, it just seems very out of place considering the tone of the last three songs. It's an enjoyable song because it is very endearing. It's upbeat nature. Very sweet. It sounds it's cheery, sweet. and I will give it this much credit. It's infectious more than anything else. It is infectious, and it lightened up the album in a sense. I mean, this album was headed in kind of a dour direction, but it was my kind of dour. I was enjoying where it was heading. That's... It was unique in its dour. I mean, the only thing is that when you take the, the format of this song, uh, this sort of African bash with the choir to go along with it, um, the sort of gospel choir style, it, it, is, it is very familiar. 
it, it takes you in a place where it's just like, ah, come on, I've, I've heard that before. Um, whereas the previous stuff, we were getting into kind of some new stuff, albeit, you know, with, with uh, familiar inserts such as the jazz, such as, such as the stuff that we know from Damon Albarn's previous work. But other than that, this, this dourness was unique. I think that the, the musical texture was unique, and we were kind of robbed from that texture of this song. It was very appropriate in terms of this album's overall, uh, overall message, and it made that metaphor excellently, I think, as far as the, um, the character of, of the elephant is concerned. And the, it's sort of a way to sort of bring children into the mix as well and say that they are not escape, they cannot escape this, this, uh, this progression either, or at least this humanity's progression. But I don't know, I, I, I got to wonder whether, whether kids would really see that. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it, there could have been more intriguing ways to talk about the displacement of nature due to the encroachment of mankind upon the territory of living creatures and you can keep going on there for quite a long tirade it's more intriguing perhaps but i will say it's unique yeah it's still for all the when you get the backstory it's bleak but at the same time there's a little bit of hope here give a helping hand help out mr tembo he's Mr. Elephant, he needs help. <laughs> his, his name actually means elephant, so he is Mr. Elephant. But then we have to talk about the freestyle here, which comes two-thirds of the way through the song. Well, excuse me, even later than that. It was very much toward the end, which was sort of the... What I felt it was kind of a heavy-handed insert of the album's theme into something that could have more a more simpler, um, more simpler implication. The uh, freestyle goes... Logistics, haulage, golf, bungalows, spires, canals, cows, hay bales, telegraph wires, pylon power, farmhouse over chimneys still used, stone, satellites, football pitches, faded flags, and lots of dogs, neon cross on top of a block of flats, and a church, not as usual. Very provocative lyrics. At the same point, it is tough for me to connect this with the elephant... Well, that's that's because this, this is that's the man-made encroachment upon the natural territory and all the things that we do, which displaced this element, causing to be orphaned because he couldn't stay with his herd, yada yada yada. But Green was there a direct message. release? I mean, was there a direct connection between that that the elephant was was uh, was orphaned or disconnected as a result of of man-made encroachment? I believe there was, in fact, a a, a specific instances of words in here that actually do mean what happened and why the elephant was there. It's more speaking to what's going on in a lot of developing countries and even a lot of developed first world quote countries. Well, you're sure, especially when this. you consider what's going on in Brazil. I mean, we've heard the narrative of they're chopping down the rainforest for years and years and it hasn't stopped being true. They're still chopping down the rainforest and uh, it really just depends on how much people want to talk about that or not. And yes, and, this will cause similar types of problems. And also so, yeah, China I, I and in that India regard. and uh, Indonesia and most of Southeast Asia. I'm, yes, there's a lot of Greenpeace in this one. I think what it is at the end of the day when it comes to how to take this track on the album is that it was in it's very in line with the album's theme but it chose to go toward much more of a uh, a specific direct cause and effect kind of thing how it affects a universal uh, society the cause of um, I mean the cause being being technology 
and then the effect being the various natural problems that will occur as a result. That's somewhat of a disconnect from the overall album's idea, of, which is the individual's relationship with said technology. It just, I, I feel, by including this track, we suddenly have a much broader message, where without it we had a stronger, narrowed message. I will definitely agree with that. Yeah, that, that but I, I feel like the, the broader message what was intentional. I think that that's what he's going for, is this mix of a broader and more narrow message. Uh, kind of a back and forth? Yeah. And, well, I That's mean, not saying that every robot is a very personal story. Well, it's actually, still more about the individual no, it's as not, well, opposed to anything else, though. Sure, but a lot of times, it, even if it's not using him per se, and yes, it was, was stated this was a personal album, a lot of times it still is, I think, the, the individual, whoever you wish to place in that one stead, their relationship with what's going but on. But I think what, what's becoming clear here is that there are also bits and pieces in every song that ties directly back to him. Like, this is based on an elephant that he actually met, and stuff like that, too. Yeah, well, I guess if you interpret the elephant as the individual, then you could even cross over in that sense. Yes. There's lots of different ways you go back and forth here, so what? I guess we'll just leave it at this. It's, it, I think it just comes down to, uh, we have to return it out of theme, as, as very often we do, and just say, how did this, how did this fit musically on the album? And it's just a little bit forced for me. Just the smidgen. But it was a release, it did pick it up, and we have interesting things to follow that also could be construed as not terribly connected to the overall thing, and hypocritically, I'll come out and say it, I liked this one. Track 5, we get Parakeet, which is just a sort of 45 second... 43, actually. 43 second expose of, <laughs> I assume, uh, his parakeet, or a parakeet. It literally is, is a parakeet looped, I believe, from just the opening sound bite. The chirp. The chirp. And that is looped. I, I can almost picture him just sitting by his piano with his, uh, with his parakeet just hanging overhead and feeling inspired. And so he wrote this. But it's sort of that snapshot brilliance that I kind of love to see, especially in the middle of albums. Well, and also this is really great because it's where the album gets personal. Because if, if it is his parakeet, it is him canoodling on a piano and fiddling around and and playing something quite beautiful and it, it it kind of almost brings you into his living room and this personal moment with damon where he's playing his piano and listening to his parakeet chirp were you able to dig up any uh, any any information beyond that on that one john parakeet no no a last 43 seconds did not seem to warrant its own Wikipedia page or anything of that type. You don't say. No. I think we should provide it then. Um, I this is the stuff I love to it. digress. Yes. This is the stuff that I love to see out of early Chad Vangelin, uh, whom we uh, reviewed his most recent album, Shrink Dust, in episode 97. But prior to that, he had older albums, and I discussed it at length in that particular uh, podcast about his earlier work and how very often it was sort of stuff that arose from ideas and demos. Ideas that very well could have been turned into larger things, but he made a conscious decision to not turn them into larger things. So they were specific, short excerpts, self-contained excerpts, which I guess doesn't make them excerpts. At that point, it's just a piece. But it's, it's a silly variation on a theme, this theme particularly being the parakeet chirp. And I, I, I think it was brilliant. It was, it was lighthearted fun, and it was still consistent with the rest of the album from a textural standpoint. And that's the big connect here. It Those was... little bloops that, are, are, that come out of this. This is like, kind of like water drops. 
You can hear that over the power key itself. Just, just even the layering he does on it just fits in the theme that had been built uh, the, definitely within the first three tracks and definitely leading into the next song. Well, also it's, the piano work, too. Yes. Links. That's what I mean. Very well. Okay. This uh, is, this is uh, I, would, I would just call it excerpt art. It's yes, an interlude. Itself. It's an interlude at its at its core too. It's just something to break up the album a little bit. Yeah, I and, read into interludes maybe perhaps a little more than most people because I enjoy them so much. And so this leads us into the Selfish Giant, which is track six, um, which also has a quite a bit of beautiful piano work. And this is one of the songs as we mentioned earlier that has a featured artist um, who usually goes by the name Bats for Lashes, is her stage name, but her actual name listed as well as Natasha Khan who is a beautiful female vocalist who, when she's layered with him on the choruses, very much blends with his voice. And it's not a matter of hearing one over the other. It's the idea of creating one sound of two voices, which I loved. But let's jump back to the beginning in the intro. Um, I found myself falling in love with that first verse with just... The intriguing piano interplay on that simple beat was was so much fun. I really, really was enjoying it. Let me be blunt here. This is, at least in terms of the introduction of this piece, this is the evolution of what I found back in track three, Lonely Press Play. That kind of jazzy uh, piano work there is expanded right up front here in The Selfish Giant as a sort of exotic, somewhat of a foreign scale, but still on the piano, so you have that connection. That's a through line throughout many pieces on this on this album. Is the the uh, the the character that the piano has is always unique in almost every track. Um, how much is developed kind of varies by degree. In this particular case, that exotic scale that exotic scale does does develop into this sort of jazzy section again, and it's a little bit more fluid than it was back in. Track three, Lonely Press Play. Even within that, you have these brief piano phrases that are just so in- exotic in their own right. And it's unique for that purpose, but it's also pervaded by this bass beneath it. And the fusion of those two instruments here, I just thought was, was expert. But, and this is one of my first major gripes on this and album. I think it's the same for me. The chorus goes too big, too fast with complicated ethereal noise on the higher register completely eliminates the piano for the first chorus and I believe the second as well uh, you said you were enjoying the harmonies the vo- voices were doing I could not tell there was a second vocalist I was I was stuck with chaff on top of it that just went really went nowhere for me just became was taking that original bass that was really still there. Was that was still there? Yeah. The percussion, all the lower register was still there, but everything that was thrown on top of it, too much, too fast. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Which illuminates what I was saying in that in that track three had this core jazz component that I felt wasn't developed enough. Now this in, this intro here exceeded that core jazz component, but yet again, did not develop it enough. So, you know, it was a bit of a letdown on both fronts for me. I will say my biggest problem with the song is that the verses did seem to trudge a bit, though could be intentional considering the title of The Selfish Giant. Um, I did enjoy that you really had to listen (laughs) to hear the the disparity in the voices because they were so close to each other. I thought it made a beautiful harmony. I will agree, though, that you had to listen and focus to find it, but... That sweeping sweetness was there in this song if you looked. 
However, the effort it required to find it was a little much. I like how we're on the opposite sides of this, uh, where, where Steve and I kind of honed in on the verses and you're honing in on the choruses, because I really honed in on what the lyrics were of the choruses. I loved the chorus. I had a dream you were leaving. It's hard to be a lover when the TV's on and nothing's in your eye. I had a dream you were leaving where every atom falling in the universe is passing through our lives. Oh, excuse me. Just, then you might have misspoke the first time you said that, uh, that the choruses were where you felt the downturn. Yes. Yes, yes. That was, that was the chorus. Oh, you were reading the chorus. Okay. That was the chorus. That was that part. Okay, I follow. Um, it's, the, what he's saying is really great because that's where you learn who the selfish giant is. It's not, it's not either of them the relationship. It's the media. It's the TV. It's that boob tube that's on that's draining their relationship. Well, and that doesn't surprise me considering the theme of the record no, thus and it's, far. Well, there's something else say- about the verse. Well, now you can continue on that point. I think. just think that it, it it's really a great way of pr- pr- um, creating this this giant, this view of the media being a selfish giant. That it takes and takes and takes without giving back. Which is kind of true. Depending on the media or the medium, it does. I mean, think about, you know, just what we put into our website, for example. It's a form of media and a form of technology that takes and takes and takes from us. We're working to have it give back, and it does give back in certain ways. We are fulfilled. However, it still does take a lot of our time, a lot of our money, you know, a lot of our, our effort and a lot of our intelligence. It's just, you know. But see, that depends on your interpretation. If the media, in this case, we we perceive ourselves as some form of media, but this that would imply that the media, that we are in the position where we take and take and take and take. And I believe that's what this is getting at, is that the media is in that position, not that the media is the victim. No, the media in this case is the bad guy. That's it what I'm is saying. the selfish giant. Well, that's what I was saying. I was kind of so crash chords is somewhat of a bad analogy. Well, no, no I was no, saying I'm... crash chords takes a lot from us as far as no, no, no. That's not what that. they're, that's that's not where they're coming from here. They're saying that the actual yeah, but we're crash chords. So like, it's a problem. No, no, no. It's it's not the production of the media or anything like that. It's the TV itself. Oh, okay, then it's my having the TV is on. Irrelevant. Yes, it's, it's just the, what you're talking about. A little us, bit. A little bit. You're saying we're taking from us. Yeah, <laughs> you kind of vilified us. That's and I don't. Honestly, I don't believe everything that they're saying here i do know that putting a tv on for too long yes will start draining your brain a little bit but at the same time i mean a lot of good comes out of being able to share well, that's right. entertainment you know that's the same but, thing as before that almost goes back to my gripe is that there are things on this album that can be disagreed with and of course yes you can say that about almost every album but it's the fact that this album happened to raise a a social issue that is still hotly debated almost 50 50 because no one really knows exactly where society is headed we can just perceive trends and then imagine the utopia or the dystopia that follows but i don't know that he's definitely saying that this is it that it's all selfish the media is selfish giant i think it's just his perspective of the media of course this is a very personal perspective, so while you could disagree with his personal perspective, it's still his perspective and he's giving it to you. So you can disagree with it, but you can't disagree with how he. But it warrants discussion, it. doesn't it? Absolutely. But I'm saying that you can't dis- disagree with the stance he's created. You can dis- disagree with him, but he's still creating something that's very definitive. Him and you can't disagree that it's him. That's I understand what you're saying, but you can you can disagree with an with an approach to a specific yes, topic. Yes, I agree. Um, I would like to point out one thing, 
And that is, you're talking about the jazziness of this and the jazziness of Lonely Press Play. Both talking about escapism into media, both talking about trying to numb yourself or being numbed by electronic entertainment of some sort. And yet sort. that implies some kind of, uh, some kind of uniformity, as in... I'm just talking thematically. No, no, that's interesting, just, just because of... it's just, you mentioned jazz, and jazz is supposed to be this wildly unique, uh, individualistic venture. Now it's just flashing lights trying to, in, uh, trying to entertain you. Which may be why it's not going anywhere. Maybe that's why it's not really culminating is because it's the empty calorie jazz of yeah. the mass media. I don't that know. Actually, I'm getting a little no, bit deep here, but that, that might actually is be... exactly the way I perceive this at some at some times. Which I mean, it, if there is a a logic behind that, uh, if it was on south purpose, as it may be on me, <laughs> if it was on purpose, it was really purposeful. It was really Shop. pointed. No, no, I'm. I know defining a word with itself, uh, all that jazz. But uh, God, I created a pun. Didn't even realize it. I feel all bad. All that jazz. Matt, take us out of this. So <laughs> this song does come com, um, complement the the following track that comes after it. I think at least musically. It does begin though, kind of a numb slide. I think I, that, of what I feel on this album so far because of the fact that I felt, you know, from a musical standpoint, theme aside, yet again, I felt like this this could have benefited from more emphasis on the exotic. Uh, whether that would have aided the theme, probably not. But you know, I'd still. There's certain things here that just from a musical perspective, they beg more, to have more of. The piano is, is underused. And then, of course, there's still moments here where, where the verses, uh, they just rock and forth between the sort of major and relative minor, almost the same uh, experience we had last week with Spoon. Yeah, just but the this same is that kind clutter of that John already talked about earlier when yeah. we were talking about this song. So, so I'm just saying, but whether you feel it has purpose behind it, that's just, you know the effect on you can still be bland. Yeah, I mean, it's a personal perspective at that point. Yeah. And the next track is track seven, You and Me, is also has a featured guest. This has the Brian Eno on it um, of Roxy Music, to name one of many things he's done, but a a very well-known artist in his own right and um, a friend of uh, Damon's. Um, Work together on this track, and he will also be featured later on the album. Um, This song is a seven-minute and six-second monster, but it doesn't feel like it, um, at least to me. Um, The song starts in this kind of almost ethereal feeling, and we use that word a lot, but it it just it did have a very vast, almost spacious, almost alien feel, but not alien as an extraterrestrial necessarily, but more alien as in foreign. It uh, it actually felt to me like it needed a visual element. That wouldn't hurt, and yeah. that was present in it the wasn't... verses. The, no, no, it was there. It was there. Uh, I met the Moko Jumbo, uh, Jumbi, which <laughs> is actually a stilts walker. Oh, okay. So he walks on stilts through All Saints Row. The, the, the verses get very descriptive, and the choruses, the choruses are extremely explicit in what it's trying to convey to you. In you, it radiates on you. Seven high, they're rising over on the other side of September when the sun sets soon. Now, there is. <laughs> I, I love I, this course. I yeah. want to know what he was doing, what he was thinking when he came up with these words because they are beautiful. It is very easy sometimes to overlook uh, the inherent poetry that is behind his voice um, because got... of how he sings sometimes. So so naturally, it it you often are, are I think more focused on the melody than than you are in the words but behind this just to read it is is, is fantastic 
Well, he's always had a very poetic lyric delivery. I mean, even in songs as early as Blur, a song like Song... Sure, but I remember the, the delivery almost more than I remember the words sometimes. And... This See, illuminates the words. Yes, I would agree. But, like, this reminds me of the song, actually, the verses remind me of the verses to a song called Song 2, which is one of their better-known songs. People mm-hmm. remember the chorus because they're so repetitive and they're so easy to sing, but his verses are so per- poetic and almost contradictory at moments, and it makes you think. And I like that he has a delivery very similar here in the verses. You know, and the lyrics, again, they make you think. He's describing things, but not in a very matter of fact and plain way he's making you think a bit making you do some research and making you want to better understand what he's talking about and this song does undergo a huge tonal shift but what i like the second half it completely eliminates the very ethereal quality it it comes crashing down to earth it becomes almost full acoustic not a whole lot of synthesization and it's it starts off with a new course, a completely different course, but a new one. You can blame me, blame me, blame me, blame me when the twilight comes and all goes around, around, around. And this is a great chorus for a completely different reason. The blending and merging of this phrase work, the way he mixes himself, and uh, just the varying of uh, his pronunciation and pacing of each word is phenomenal. Well, and he also delivers this chorus in a round, which is great for the final part of the chorus where he's singing around, 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 in a round, which I really enjoy. And we should emphasize this is chorus two, which yes. is the, the, the second chorus of this song because we, you could really perceive this song as just two wholly separate parts. But there's a there's an instrumental through line, I feel, with this song. And also what I like about this song is it doesn't rush to get to this second half. It takes a time. Oh, definitely. It's, it meanders. It's very, paced. it's very paced. But it never feels slow or boring. It's just paced. It's beautifully spaced. And it's well... It's, it's It moves along at a well pace that you don't feel in a hurry to get but to the next section. But to discuss section. what you said before about it having an instrumental through line, I mean, it's interesting considering that... Uh, the whole mood between these two halves is is strikingly different because of how the first half almost speaks of something elevated. Uh, even when you when you describe it as alien, you're you're describing something as as furiously unique, yeah. something that is uh, that is sort of an entity unto itself. Right. And then when you go to the next half. Where suddenly we, we, we do strip away that what we were calling it a sort of ethereal quality, and it leaves it very barren, kind of. It's warm, but it's barren in the sense of we know what has just been shaved off. Which is the mystique. And I think it's that's mystique, a, well, and that's, that's done through the instrumentation here. So it makes this, in many ways, two completely separate tracks. I think the through line is that there's still this connection, connected emotionality in the lyrics that pulls the story together a bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna no I'm gonna go back to what you earlier said. I'm stand up for that one. I think that the music itself doesn't go doesn't shift so far between the A and the B to really warrant a necessary separation. Yes, you can make them two separate songs. Well, the one thing that binded them was the steel drum uh, transition. But that well, steel no, not drum just the transition. was the pacing is very similar. The 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 percussion is extremely similar. But the but the tra- the steel drum that transitions also with it is hitting notes that were done otherwise by other instruments in the first half of the song. 
Hmm. It's not doing anything different. And this is where I'm actually going to have a complaint for all the great vocals I love. I don't feel like the song actually goes anywhere. Even in in the separate sections, the A, the B, I feel like they just kind of stagnate a little bit too much. I don't I don't want it rushed. I'm not saying that it should have gone from A song to B song more quickly, but I would have liked maybe a little bit of an expansion or maybe even a depression when you're going to make that transition because the transition itself comes across a little abrupt. A little abrupt. Going from that A to bridge to B. I mean, I think it's almost impossible to discuss this without discussing the lyrics themselves. And obviously the lyrics seem to imply some kind of falling out between these two distinct sections. I'm not saying that it should have been two completely separate tracks. You can't have a falling out unless you're describing it within one cohesive entity. Well, and I think also since it's called You and Me and it's supposed to represent this this dichotomy between two people, you would guess, that falling out is supposed to represent the falling out between these two people as well, which it I think also, it conveys very strongly. The first one could also... Uh, section A is obviously the other person, you, and Section B is obviously me, Who just from the more, tonal shift uh, and, and the it could vocal be more shift. Down to earth, a more down-to-earth point of view versus it's a down more to earth ethereal... Because, because obviously for two very simple reasons. I mean, well, one very simple reason. The first implies that they were... In love. Love, of course, is going to have to bring in all the ethereal uh, instrumentation that goes with it because it's meant to be uplifting. It's meant to be bigger than something, bigger than anything we know, and then we're suddenly grounded in this cold reality. Blame me. You can blame me. Well, that's it's what, about that's, as much of a reality as you can get. I mean, that's what it in is. terms of cold, hard defeatism. In you, it radiates on you into blame me, you can blame me. Yeah. It, 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 it just undergoes a, a perspective shift. And then you also get that line, all goes round again, which is, as you said, sort of uh, sung in a round, which I found was very clever and cool at the same time. Beyond that, of course, it kind of implies that there's a cyclical nature to this. Which... That there's nothing eternal about part A here, but something very eternal to part B, B, which is depressing as hell. De- but very a very astute and interesting perspective. Yep which I think really makes the song a solid, cohesive piece in the end. So that brings us to Hollow Ponds, track eight. So Hollow Ponds, we have another narrative again, and but this one is more personal. So Hollow Ponds is actually a place, um, it, it's a, an actual pond in the town where he grew up, and he actually samples sounds, I believe it was this song, yeah, he samples sounds from a playground in Layton, where he near his old school when he was a kid. He also uh, towards the end of the song samples sounds from uh, trains going into the London Underground from his town. But all as these well. all these lyrics that he brings up on this song are um, points of his life. Like he refers to the '76 drought that he experienced. He talks about uh, the Green Man and the Green Man that left him back in '91 which I'm still not quite sure of where that's coming from, but this is actually just referencing parts of his life as he's, as he's done it. In fact, the line about 1993 is, um, references the Blur's, Blur's song, Modern Life is Rubbish, where its origin comes from, which is, uh, was um, graffiti he saw while traveling the London Underground. Yeah. So this is 
very, very personal. And you knew you were going to get a song like this somewhere on the album. I mean, he's someone who has incorporated a lot of his own personal and personality into the Gorillas, as well as Let It Shone Through here, as well as in Blur. But I think it's kind of also refreshing to take a moment to hear where he's coming from on a very personal level. And I also said, and I think I got a little bit t- tentative agreement, that without these vocals, this c- this song could almost be used for a spaghetti western. <laughs> nah, no, I, I kind of could go along with that. I mean, I mean, and this depends, uh, obviously there's some implications considering my comment on this uh, as to how you feel about spaghetti westerns, but there is something that I just felt it was a little musically dull about this track. It was a little harder for me to get behind. I mean, in points it's nice, for instance, that it has these little brass sections, which I, I particularly liked at the end. But other than that, I mean... It felt like a montage music. It's mont Exactly. Like, I, you know, I would agree. there are long, slow portions of spaghetti westerns that have just personally been a little... Uh, difficult to get behind at times. Well, well, I wouldn't agree about the spaghetti western thing. I'm not disagreeing either. I honestly have no opinion on it whatsoever. Um, but I, I see the montage, and if that's but what I you see some, for a montage, then so be it. But I have a, I want to speak to that montage bit. I feel like that that could be considered intentional because he wants it to feel montage since the lyrics are montage They're essentially about his life in snippets, and that's a montage, more or less. And I think that he stripped down the music a little bit to focus on the lyrics. I'm not saying it's right or it's better. I'm just saying that might be where the structure comes from. I will say... This is another one of those. This is yet another one of the in, in, intentional um, sort of art versus uh, versus product uh, concerns because of the fact that I may find it dull, but of course I see your point. Of course I see what, what purpose this serves to uh, to, well... To the album, in a sense, is actually a little bit, uh, a little bit varied, only because this really focuses in on on the past. It it takes that element, which I know is under the larger umbrella, probably in a sense of getting closer to a childhood that may have predated uh, most of this technology crap. Which I think is also part of it is this looking at this history to go back to a time when. I know. mean, these are very. Uh, just the natural imagery that goes on here, apart from just hollow ponds. I mean, I was by the Black Sea, two hours in time, spicy urchins and a new school bell. This is like a Victorian postcard right here. Yeah. I mean, not that the guy's that old, but, you know, it's um, it really is almost painting like an idealized past, yeah. in, in a sense. But Which, that may end very well end up becoming true because even these dates, 1976, 91, 79, 93, they predate most of the modern technology that we could say is governing our lives today. I mean, as yeah. late as we go there, which is 93, is still just the the early days of the internet when it was more of a novelty than a than a thing. And I think that that that, that emotionality is conveyed in the song setup, whether it's musically engaging or not I think it comes down to personal opinion which you both have expressed quite clearly but I think structure wise and art versus music as we were saying artistically I think it's a very strong track well it, I mean, I felt, it still works with the theme but it, it does yes well because we just said it, it's a, a past before all that stuff I find no 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 back. it's also ship on hollow ponds was filled 
the, yeah, it's the ship destruction. On the, uh, finish the line. Ship on hollow ponds was filled up with the dreams we've shared on our CDs. But which I think is one pausing, of the most provocative lines. It's in also this. the pausing. Ship on hollow ponds was filled up with the dreams we shared on our CDs. Yeah, but that's just a melodic break there. That's a through sentence. No, no, no. His pacing don't care about melodic breaks. He's done some weird things. I think that was an intentional choice. Also, the green man. The I, green man, I think, actually was some sort that. of forested area was some sort of natural preserve where half my road was a po uh half my road was now a motorway i mean i think i think he's talking about the changes to the world around him that he, he had to experience and it, it seems to boil down to man encroaching on nature of course yeah i mean the, but specifically it with it that still fits the theme it still fits the theme that's what i'm saying but see, this is the one interesting thing about that you cannot dispute that connection between Ship on Hollow Ponds was filled up with the dreams we've shared in our CDs. In other words, the dreams that he conveys through his music utilizing digital technology. Yeah. He's, Literally, like that, that's a very important break, I think. In, yeah. in some sense, he's almost uh, Im implying a defense. Well, I think he's showing the conflict. Within himself. Bingo. There's an internal conflict as well as an external conflict. And this song focuses ultimately and resolves with that internal conflict. And that leads us into the next track, which is Seven High. Um, Seven High, which incidentally is in seven time. <laughs> and it's a one minute long interlude track as well. This was so awesome being in, in seven beats because it took me... Actually, two and a half-ish repetitions to realize it, because there was always something wrong with it. There was always something in this melody that I couldn't quite get my finger on that was just a little bit disconcerting, because it's a back and forth. It's a complicated versus a simplistic back and forth, and having it in that seven-beat framework just made it eerie as all heck. It made and it, I want the song that goes. It, with it, this. it, it I what, want more. It felt, I want it. It felt almost mechanical. It had an eerie beauty to it. And I... You both said that you wanted a fuller song from this. I kind I of... I did not. Oh. I did. I was the one that I was harping. I was all right, no, I was like, I'm a fan of the, of the short little one-shots. I think this is a very, very succinct track that gets exactly where it needs to be in the amount of time provided. I think, like Parakeets, it's beautiful in its construction within its framework. I, I agree 100%. I think this song is, is 100%... This, this, excuse me, this little piece is is 100% succinct. It, um, it, in many ways, it's kind of a song of, of white noise, which is kind of what we're surrounded by. The piano, interestingly, is the piano section of this little piece is one key apart from the music that you hear after that, the muffled music that sounds as if it's being played through a television. And hearing that both go on at the same time, this, these, this little human human quality this this music filled with humanity next to something that is obviously born of the technological era where you can hear exactly what the, you can hear the filter or the lack of filter as it were coming through the airwaves coming through the speakers and then the choice to actually separate that by a whole key is it's brilliant in, in a sense because it shows that there is a disconnect um, kind of, a, again, it's a little bit of a heavy-handed thing. It proves that there's a disconnect um, 
through art, but still, that is one of those cases where whether you agree with it or disagree with it, I don't think anyone can dispute this particular approach. It also comes off a little bit like dueling banjos, the the call and and recall, or what's the word? Call and response. Call and response, thank you. Uh, effect that's going on between the two sections as they go back and forth, back Hence and forth. the seven beats. And it also may contribute as to why you have such an awkward seven beats. It's a seven beats to, to feel in a natural world, and then seven beats to feel in an, the, unnatural, in, an world. unnatural world. And each of those are unnatural because seven beats is so odd. In other words, you complete your experience with one and you're left unfulfilled and then you complete your experience with the other, and you're still left unfulfilled. Which, as if it just didn't reach that nice, happy eighth beat. Which is, And that's, that's again, brilliant. Yeah, I agree. I, I, think I can't put track. that anymore. And well, I think it, it brilliantly transitions to the tenth track, which is photographs, parentheses, you are taking now, um, which features a sample of Timothy Leary um, from an audiobook he'd done in the 60s. And, um, I mean, just starting from the quote, that doesn't start the track. There's um, Damon singing first, and then the quote comes in when he gets to the progression that leads to the chorus. Um, but it adds this kind of haunting air, almost this depressing, depressing kind of downerish feel to this track because the hollowness of that old recording mixed with the music that he has going for this track gives it this kind of spookiness to the idea of photographs, which at an old time were believed to steal the soul every time you took one. Or mm. it, it also... Which I think starts, it plays into that lore. It starts playing into a, a little bit deeper there where all these people, the millions of us on the hill from the star to, the, to land's ends, when the photographs you're taking now are taken, now press send. Well, if there's a million of us taking all this beautiful vista, well, what's the point? What's One man capturing something magnificent can be pointed, can be poignant, can be emotionally inspiring. But when everybody, when millions are all taking the same photo, it very quickly will dilute, will become passe, will become unimpactful. An emptiness it's trying to convey also of those images. They're... Um is another interesting element, though, and that is the Timothy Leary quote. Mm -hmm. uh, did you mention the Timothy Leary quote? I did, quote? yes. This is a precious opportunity. Beware of the photographs you are taking now. And the fact that you know the history of Timothy Leary being sort of this, this advent, the uh, pro progenitor in many ways of the American drug culture, where the photographs in many ways was the experience that you had under, under psychedelia under hallucinogenics. The photographs were the things that you created yourself and burned in your own mind. I find that interesting that for something that is so individualistic, uh, that's inter interspersed here with all these images of something that could very well be uh, sort of despecified. Yes, and also the idea that with, with these photos that Capturing, I, I kind of look at it this way, uh, not to interrupt, but I think I am. On, I got some. Uh, capturing these photos is not the same as experience. Yes, that's where I was going. Thank okay, you. you're welcome. So, returning the favor. A lot of a lot of people complain, and I'm one of them. When I go to concerts, if I'm going to concerts as Matt Storm from Crash Chords, and I want to cover the event, 
I take a lot of photos. But if I'm going as Matt Storm, fan of music, and I don't want to cover it for the website, it drives me bonkers when people are watching the show through their phones, videotaping it. Yeah. Because... I agree. You... you don't, don't look at your phone, dummy. Look it, at the band in front of you. The worst thing I had to experience, and Power Man 5000 handled it very gracefully, well, specifically Spider, is the whole time he was singing When Worlds Collide, which is one of notably their biggest hits, a fan favorite for sure, someone had a phone in his face the whole time. Um, the guy had his hand up and the phone up. So Spider went to shake his hand, and he shaked he hit his hand so hard it, the guy lost balance and had to drop like bring down his phone to regain composure and then just continue to rock out the song and didn't remember to take the phone back out but it's one of those things where that guy the only, is missing a chance and awkwardly interacted with a musician because he was looking at his phone if he had just been interacting it would have been different it, it's you're you're speaking to the idea of by putting a layer of technology between you and nature you cease to actually experience nature which is kind of what this is trying to convey but there's another little crucial element which i don't think i 100 percent conveyed before and that is this whole drug culture thing i believe that is actually being connected here to uh to this this technological element sort of equating drugs to technology in the same sense and the fact right, that it is an yeah the fact that it is an aid to you yeah it is an aid it it, it it's Ideally, it's supposed it's to an, enhance your experience in a certain way. It's an interpretive way. device. Interpretive like device. weed could be considered an interpretive device for understanding lyrics. But either way, it still is a distracting device in that same sense yes. and takes you away from the core element here. So yes. I think really that's that's the, the the main purpose of this track, or at least it's um because the fact that technology is not really something you you see too much in these lyrics apart from simply the photographs you are taking now but i see a considerable reference uh, amount of references to to drug culture so i think just replace the same analogy that you just made with the uh, the guy and his phone at the concert i would more say that the, what he's trying to get at is the guy getting high taking cocaine in the bathroom at the concert because it enhances his experience and that in itself is also taking away from the show i think i would agree that's a huge portion of this i would agree i think this whole song gets summed up in easily my favorite line of the album period bar done all is but a vanity and the metron uh, the metronome knows that defeats you is the monochrome that you seek I love the poetry involved with this. The repetition beats you by giving you exactly what you want. The sameness. Or the experience. Or the picture. Or the photograph. Or what you're looking for. Right. And this... Doing all this is, is purely vain. Doing, doing all these drugs or immersing yourself in technology or whatever you want to interpret as well, think, the evil of this song. Think about a, band, a fan who goes to a show and t turns his back to the stage to take a selfie with the artist performing behind him <laughs> is exactly a synonym for that. That you is are, a great synonym. <laughs> yes. Um, this track does... Um, Analogy. We do get oh, yeah. a bit of a... Uh, yeah, thank you. We do get a bit of a change, though, when we move on to the next track, which is track 11, the history of a cheating heart, which I love as a title. It's just it's a very it's it's a very clear title message-wise of what this is supposed to convey, and it starts out as a very acoustic track. 
Um, it's an acoustic guitar and Damon's wonderful vocals, and it instantly conveys into this very lonely, isolated feeling. You know, this idea that, you know, the the history of a cheating heart and the life they lead is a lonely and depressing and isolated one. Um, and then it kind of swells a bit as if it were going to move to a sweeter place at around one a minute and 30 musically, but it doesn't really go there the whole way. It becomes a layer for the background, but it still lingers in that kind of isolated place, I... never comfortably moving out of it. And and this is where I'm going to nitpick the album as a whole as well as this song. I feel like there's been a little bit too much numbness involved with this album. And this song really shows it here. Uh, it, it's not the numbness where you've been so hurt you have to shut off emotions. Or you're so angry you have to shut off emotions. It's it's not actively seeking numbness. This This song just felt disinterested. I didn't know where it was going because it kind of just went nowhere. I wanted more. I wanted a little bit more complication because there's no passion here. And it's so hard to do on a, on a micro scale of a song or a macro scale of an album something that kind of promotes non-passion, promotes numbness. And here it really bled through as just being too much of this unemotional state. I... Agree 100%. I have to say, when it came to this track, I felt myself a little bit more pulled in than some of the preceding tracks. Because in general, I agree with what you're saying. I think I think many of these tracks, are, are they just suffer by being a little bit too numb. And I know that's just, that's tough, because he's... He's striving to sort of recreate that numbness as, as, a, as a metaphor for what we're all kind of going through. But, yeah, that's just, that's a little problematic when, when you're delivering on an album scale because then you need, you need it to shine in very astute moments, such as in color, such as in rhythm. And he has done that here and there, but sometimes not always fluidly. Very often I find myself highlighting things in this album that are uh, elements of interludes or comping instruments as opposed to, let's say, the core, the core uh, verses and choruses. It's it's the strength of the melodies is not quite there throughout the album. But I would I think dis- that's what it boils down for me. But yeah, I would no. Di- I do want to pull away and say that this track, I, I I I can't put it in the same league as some of those moments that I was just describing. I John agree. sees it here. I don't see it here as much. I do think this track did an excellent job in conveying that that isolation and loneliness. Yeah, I'm with Steve. I feel there's too much emotion here to consider it numb. Um, it's just. The way he's singing and delivering these lyrics, you feel the pain in his heart and in his voice. And there's not a numbness in this song. I flat out disagree. I'm sorry. It's just it's not here. Um, there, I will agree, though, that there is an overarching numbness on the album, and it can be a bit trying. That said, it's also probably very intentional, like Steve said. So it's a dichotomy and a conflict that we will probably have to discuss further in our wrap-ups. It has to do with the melodic power of this track. Sometimes, sometimes, and not always, because very often I adore his melodies, but sometimes you can almost gloss over the melodies in place of other things. In this particular case, the melody is just 
way too strong and it boils down to that one line the history of a cheating heart is always more than you know it's just this this inner strife that you feel within those lyrics this it's hard to ignore this idea that someone who has a cheating heart or someone who is a cheating kind of person that their history their struggle there's more to it than you could probably ever understand for better or for worse for right or for wrong there's more to it and it can be an isolating life because if you go around hurting lots of people reputation delivers it's also, it's also if you've cheated once you've probably cheated a thousand times a million times in your heart anyway Right. You're this, already isolating yourself without ever cheating. You would have been doing so. Well, yeah. There's. I like the depth here. I like the 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 lyrics themselves are pretty good. I just it. I feel like he's so disinterested that I just can't get on see, board see, with this I, one. I don't. I don't sense this interest. I sense, like I said, it's depression and loneliness and isolation. But but. I, I don't think that he's removing himself from anything. I think he's plunging headfirst into this void of emptiness that he's put himself in or the character is in if it's not actually representing him. Though I do believe this is either about him or about someone close to him. I, I feel the pain in that line. And yes, the, yeah. the always more than you know is, is, is very important when it comes to sort of isolating the origin of how a certain problem erupted and whatnot. It's always, it's always good to ask questions. And I think this song is perfectly paired with the final track on the record, and I have a reason for that. I love this final track. So the final track is Heavy Seas of Love, and this song features both Brian Eno, who had been on earlier, and the the Laystone City Mission Choir as well, are both in this track. And it's just a very uplifting track. It gives you this peak of hope after all of this bleakness and, and, and numbness and depression and loneliness this is the I, 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 my, the exact way to describe it is it's a silver lining song it's telling you that no matter how bad it gets no matter how depressed or lonely or robotic or isolated there's still something out there there's a silver lining and I think it's just beautiful um, it's end credits Yeah, it's it, a great finale to the album itself it, really, it does a great job of kind of summing everything up because it, it, it actually brings back a lot of the theme work from other songs as well uh, especially in the lyrics Radiance is in you another line um, the seeds the day just just the imagery is very reminiscent of little tidbits here and there throughout the whole album which is is pretty good and the, I re- the water references from Hollow Pond it, it's it's, it's a summation without being just a restatement of the same themes over and over and over again. And what I really like also is that it, it this, this ray of hope that is really delivered by the choruses. Because the choruses feature Brian Eno and this choir and Damien all singing together in unison. And it's just, it's gorgeous. It, it really conveys this hope that the song is trying to deliver. I don't think Eno actually did all the choruses. I think he was primarily the verses. I think they only got together for the... Final uh, chorus. And even then, he may not have done it. I think Either it was, way, though, even if it was it just... Was, it, with that dichotomy between the two soul, voices, yeah. it was actually really... That added an additional layer to it. Because the choruses, uh, Damon, what he's singing about, the the heavy seas of love, I, I just love the imagery he's throwing in there. Yeah, that, that love is a thing that can get you... Th- essentially saying that love can get you through. It won't always be easy. It won't always be good. It won't always be fun. But ultimately, love can get you through. And I mean, I, I'm a hopeless romantic, so a 
beautiful message like that is is wonderful to me. Eh. <laughs> F you. The and message it, is beautiful. The song is just not as beautiful. I'm sorry, but I feel the way John felt on the last track. It's not oh, I'm enough. Honing, I'm honing completely on the vocals and lyrics here. Yeah, that, that's the, what then, I'm getting. Can we it's, not ignore... Can we... No, no, we're are waiting we all for you. ignoring the music? No, we're then. waiting for you. We're waiting for you to deliver that side of it. That's your job, man. You're, you're the best. All right, fine. The music came off as hokey. I think I, I can't feel what you feel in this track because the music didn't convey it very well. It's a very common message, everything that you just said. It, love will find, I mean, all you need is love. It goes back to 1968 there. Come on, it's, it's, it is so fundamental, I think, in terms of, of human art, in terms of the entire history of art to convey that love will get you through all problems. Love one another and it will it will fight all But he's all not components. saying that. But see, I think he's in not a saying, sense, that's he's not what saying you're that saying. Love. No, what I'm you saying. you just said. No, you got from this. No, I'm saying that love can find a way, but it's not going to fix everything. He's conveying here that love is a silver lining and there's a hope, but that it's not going to fix everything. You're saying, you know, all you need is love is a very different message. This idea that no matter what happens, all you need is love and you'll be just fine. And here's where I'm going to defend Steve quite a bit because that's I that boils down to high hopes I've got high hopes. That's, that's the hokiness. Yeah, it does come across as that. I like the fact I, no, I love so, the yeah, fact I, that Maybe a little drawing. bit more in depth. I understand that it's more in depth perhaps than just, uh, you know, love will find a way or or all you need is love yes there are some other elements there as we pretty much had in the previous tracks but then all you wind up is sort of a, a summation kind of track that introduces a little bit of all the former and the music just did not live up to that in my opinion um I wasn't even the first one to point it out, and I don't agree with this 100%, but John had originally mentioned it sounded like a 1970s uh, like sitcom lead-in or something like that. Yep. Which, you know, maybe that's a little far, but there was definitely somewhat of a dated vibe to this. Nothing of the, of the, uh, of the wildly unique stuff that we got earlier on this album or midway through this album. I just thought it was kind of a flat ending. And that's it's not where, really... Yeah, that's where I got a problem. It, it's kind of generically end credits. I, I have to hone in, though. I love the fact that they do reference previous songs, that they really are doing a great job of summing up the lyrical and vocal aspects of this album together in one spot. I think almost... But I'm on Steve's side on this one that it's musically it doesn't bring anything to the table. Well, I could care less. Like, I'm not saying that I could care less about your opinions. I could care less personally that musically it doesn't bring anything to the table. Because for me, the dichotomy versus track 11 made this song more powerful for me, especially lyrically. And I thought the vocal delivery was beautiful. I will agree that the music was repetitive and almost unnecessary. I have one other comment about that vocal delivery, and that's the fact that much as I love Brian Eno, I don't know. It, there, there was, it, it kind of ruined the consistency of this album for me to hear... His voice is the primary vocalist at the end here. When I was so accustomed to hearing David Alburn, it's 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 the kind of thing that um, you know you can have somebody help you out along the way. But this was one of those cases where I felt the the heavy hand of of the uh, of the guest, and unfortunately that took away from the character of this album. It felt like something that was separate. It felt like it didn't belong here in many ways. The only thing it really had in common with, uh, in terms of just feel, because it was a little bit more, uh, more happy-go-lucky, was, um, 
Mr. Tembo. Mr. Tembo, that's it. I would agree that musically it's divorced, but message-wise, I completely disagree. I think because it's a summation and also relays earlier messages in the summation, lyrically and theme, it's connected. No, this is is an issue where I even have to say the first time in the album where I think that even message-wise, it was a little bit of a cop-out. It's the predictable end to an otherwise engaging story. Hmm. It's not. It's not just but, love silver lining. But predictable lining. doesn't think, make no, it no, no, divorced. No, no, no. I don't think it's. It's not just love silver lining. No, it's. I think. I think you gotta. You gotta delve a little bit more into the lyrics themselves because it does have a more unifying theme. When the world is too tall, you can jump and you won't fall. You're in safe hands. What the day will now give, how those seeds will now live. It's in your hands. It speaks a little bit more to taking responsibility. Than just love will find a way or any of this love theme work. Yes, heavy seas of love, but it's not just love is going to do something. It's that you have to love nature to save it. That's what I think it really boils down to. All this technology encroaching upon society and kind of divorcing people from each other, from nature, from natural things. Love, love still does the unifying part. Of bringing people together. I think that if you want to say that it's a predictable end, I can't disagree. But I can't say that it's divorced from the theme. I am saying that the poeticism of it is is somewhat underwhelming, considering what we what I have gotten so far. The so poeti- it's not like as even good... even in the poetry itself, I'm just not as wowed as as some of the previous tracks here. When the world is too tall, you can jump, you won't fall. He just You're in safe yeah. hands. Oh, did this, you just yeah, read that just, stanza? Oh, I'm sorry. This is no, the I like same that. exact stanza that yeah. he wrote. Excuse Red. me. My, my, it's, I zoned for a minute. Either way, just maybe I was picking up on those lyrics as you read it because it's just it's not striking me very much as 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 powerful in its way. Like oh, I, I understand what it's saying, but it it you know you could boil it down to simpler to simpler language. It's some fluff. That's what I feel. Okay. Otherwise, otherwise, I, I was fairly satisfied with this. Should I start the wrap-up? Sure. Or, I don't know, do you want to go first? Um, unless anyone has any more pertinent ideas that are in the brain. No. I'm just offering to go first. Because you so often go Let's first. Let's not waste really time discussing who will go first. Somebody start the wrap-up. <laughs> anyway, I have always been a fan. No, strike that. I've usually been a fan of Damon's earlier work. I like most of Gorillaz. I like a lot of Blur. I've heard a lot of his uh, uh, set work with other with other artists. Like, he did one album with Flea. Yes. Pretty good. I, I thoroughly enjoy a lot of the stuff he does. But not everything is great. I, Plastic Beach, I really couldn't get on board for when we're talking Gorillaz. Well, I, I really like that album, though. Demon Days is still my favorite. Yeah, but it's like... He gets a little bit scattered, and when you look at his previous work and you look at this, I can see that same effect coming through here because there's there's a lot of back and forth and going here and going there when you start talking the actual music, and that's that's something that takes this unifying arc and starts to take it apart for me. When you have music like Mr. Tembo, even Parakeet and Seven High, but Mr. Tembo and Heavy Seas of Love, it, it can break up an otherwise 
great art because these songs are really outside the realm of what we were already getting. Um, at the same time, I, I want to also be a, a lot a bit nitpicky because so much of what was great about this album is that it was layered so awesomely at parts. It had great accent work, but I, there's like Steve said earlier, there's so little uh, in the melodies and in, in the harmonies for us to expand upon because it gets a lot of looping, a lot of just repetition of the same progression throughout a single, throughout the whole a whole song. But it's so alright in so many cases, getting that repetition, to be able to just go and mellow out and enjoy this music. Because this is a very mellow album. Its highest energy points are the oddballs and the rest of it. It really is an enjoyable, fairly introspective to extremely introspective, depending on the song. Um... It's just, uh, it's like little tidbits here and there that we already went through. I'm just not feeling it as a super high album. That being said, I'm still putting it as a solid 4.2. I'm going to get into the regular decimals. It's a solid 4.2 album. It's it's nothing life-changing, and it's got a lot of quality there. There's not really any songs on here I dislike. Not by a long shot. I like pretty much everything on this album. That being said, it's it's got cohesion problems. It's got just repetition problems that keep it from being an upper echelon piece. Um, I'll go a little further with... Uh, I mean, I can't be so harsh against certain instances. Only because when you're talking about elements like the melody and like his vocals you really can't find fault they're they're really just beautiful in their own way which means that this album lies in this strange threshold between it being just good music and then making the lasting impression it's really just walking that line for me pretty much front to back but it had much more of a chance in the front which means i think this album was a bit of a fallout for me and because it just didn't seem to have that that bold direction that other uh, that other more impactful albums would would sort of naturally have. I feel like sometimes the broad nature of the thesis here is actually holding this album back a little bit. It's interesting to discuss the the disparity between nature and technology because of their fundamental differences. Um, the personal elements, which interestingly on in this album should be the most engaging sometimes fall out a little bit because there are other elements that can't quite support it i can't really explain why that is but it maybe it's just because we look at so many different factors so many different aspects of of challenges between nature and technology i mean from the very first track I have a feeling that this album sold itself very strong right up front because of the fact that as the title track, Everyday Robots in many ways just sums up this album in the very, very beginning. The rest is a lot of sort of snapshots and scenes of instances. I, I, I could almost equate it to the function that, for anyone who's ever seen it, the Animatrix served to the Matrix trilogy. It's like... 
all right, we're not delivering too much in the way of plot, but Animatrix serves to provide you with the fundamental knowledge of how the world came to end up in that situation. And it's actually, that may have been a Freudian slip because actually that's the, the whole theme work of the Animatrix is actually about nature versus technology in many instances and the crossover between the two. So when you're looking at this, I kind of want to equate it to that. But then we end up with some tracks that I have to say, I'm not really looking too much toward the, toward the theme work. I'm really just looking toward the music. I think Hostels is just a beautiful song from beginning to end. I think the string work on this album is beautiful beginning to end. But whether or not string work really implies nature or technology, I mean, I kind of want to go to nature because it's so rom inherently romantic. At the same time, I just... I see it as strong music, and I feel like there could have been more there could have been more to come out of this if he had just gone further in the music department and explored some of these ideas more than he explored the theme. The theme is solid, and this album's gonna go a little bit higher than John for that because i've i've done I've done more for uh, for theme in the past for certain. I, I, I kind of want to place this at a 4.4. A little bit shy of 4.5, because I think 4.5 or higher would leave me with something grand. But, I mean, granted, if I gave Jack White's Lazaretto, you know, somewhere in the same department in the lower fours for its theme work, which sort of in, explored the gray areas of, of uh, humanity, which, again, it's an important thing to discuss, I want to kind of give this the same, the same cred. It's an important thing to discuss, but I think it could have been, it could have been fused in so much better just by being a little bit more focused. That said, there's just some things here musically that I do think Damon Auburn is doing better than ever, and that's probably why it's going up uh, at four four. Actually, four three. I'm going four three. Just leaving it at that. <laughs> you didn't even have to say something to convince him otherwise. I don't know, can... it's just, it's tough. This is a very strange, like, remember what I said, it, it, it lingers on a threshold between being good music and having a lasting impression. So I don't think I've ever given a 4-3 that way, and I somehow feel the closer you get to a 4-5 means that I would be going back to this, which I can't imagine I'd be doing anytime soon. You wouldn't be going back to this album? I don't think so. Well, There's a few things. The first track, especially, but some of those introduce. jazz things especially, but these are all the in-between moments. So I'm going to start right off by saying that I think I just view this album very differently from you, which is fine, because, I mean, I like interpreting things a bit differently. Um, the, I think that this album, I agree that the narrative, not the narrative, wrong word, the theme is very solid. A very solid theme. Musically, it's enjoyable. I really like it. I am going to go back to this album a lot, especially songs like, um, uh, what was it, Press Play... Um, uh, Lonely Press Play uh, is a song that will stay in permanent rotation because it's a song that I personally identify with. But the whole album is, as, as an album, I find akin to Gorillaz and Blur's work as far as something that I will constantly go back to because there's so much to pull from here, even in its moments where it seems out of place. Even though Mr. Tembo doesn't feel like it fits on this record musically, I think um, my enjoyment of the song itself personally is enough for me now be that doesn't make it a great song because I enjoy it you can enjoy crap 
but this isn't crap. It's just it doesn't fit to the overall arc as well as some other stuff. But I think that Damon is doing some great work here, and I think putting it under him because there's really no reason why this couldn't be released as Gorilla's work, other than he worked on it all by himself. They're they're missing about four individuals that would make this Gorillas. They're not real people. I'm talking about the other people that he works with. Uh, oh. I thought you meant the band members. The people who make the music are the band members. I know, not the... Never mind. But my point is, though, is that... Difficult. <laughs> I think that... That he's on the right track to something really great. And I think this is a step in that right direction. And I think that this topic that he broaches is a really strong one worth further exploring. I think also that his album artwork for this record of him sitting alone on a chair with just the title scribbled up above his head in a grayscale of the whole cover is very much a preview to everything you're getting in this track. Because ultimately, it feels like he's leading himself to isolation. He's leading himself to wanting to be alone and um, removed from this technology. But the difficulty is that he's reliant on this technology to make himself heard, which is that what that line I think is really about with the uh, the CDs that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I agree. It leads to that. Um, but I don't know. I don't just see it as detrimental as you guys do. I, it's by no means a five. You know, this isn't perfect. It doesn't. It it still doesn't come close to Saint Vincent, who was just for me there in every way. She really calculated that album perfectly to me. And it, it, as far as pop, pop music goes, I feel like it's the pinnacle at the moment of what we have to offer as pop music. This is not the pinnacle of anything, but it's making strides to get there. That said, there are still gaping holes in it that I can't award it a 4.5, because a 4.5 is still something that will move to the next step. I don't have the quite the same dichotomy you do about if it's lower than a 4.5, you won't probably come to it again. I listen to tons of stuff that are threes or higher. No, you're right. That was a false. But I, I, you I won't, just feel like it's not a You won't a fair be dynamic. obsessing over it. I won't be. Like you have over some things. I've, to be honest, I've probably obsessed over things that have even been under four. It really just comes down to the cohesion, I guess, in the end. And the cohesion, I think, is what this is missing. But for me, I think this is something that I really enjoyed and identified in moments with, but overall emotionally was very dead. Um, there was a lot of uh, emotional emptiness or, or, or vagueness that made it hard to truly get behind it. And to broach the 4.5 to 5 area, I need an emotional connection throughout the majority of the record. And I really only connected emotionally in a few places. Intentional or not, that's a problem for me. So, for me, this is a 4.4. It's almost a 5, a 4.5. But that emotional void leaves it shy of that for me. But I think he's doing great work, and I think that if he continues to pursue solo stuff without the gorillas, I think this is a good direction for him to go. Analyzing society and its fluctuations from an artistic perspective. So you're not that far off from me anyway. No. 4.3 to 4.4 for, for interpreting this album so drastically differently from me. I mean, yeah, 
no, I think you conveyed a lot of the way I feel about this, so I don't think we're that far off. I think maybe I think it's, it's this is the, the the final note in this album. I'm really intrigued by a lot of what's going on here. Cohesion is the big problem, I think in the end. Direction is the big problem, but that's only because, as I said before, he chose such a th- such a challenging and broad thesis. It almost kind of brings me back to like college days when you know you would write a paper and you would have all these good ideas. You would love to just sort of go knee deep into something, and you feel like the passion is there, and almost like the 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 academic higher thought, but you just don't have the focus with which to throw. With which the um, with which the reader can sort of take away this this long lasting effect from each term, it's sort of like, well, are you saying this or are you saying that, or is that are you just sort of coming up with with ways to kind of repeat how awesome this one thing is, or are you actually driving toward a point? I'm sure the point here, and we all have pretty much figured out, is that yes, technology is probably hurting our effect, but of course we at several points reached instances on this album and i reached it no more uh perfectly than than back in um uh excuse me photographs nope selfish giant nope lonely press play because i'm running out, running out of choices selfish giant yes you were right okay i thought it was selfish giant that's why i i i, I guess something else originally so we reached this point in selfish giant where it, we were just sort of trapped in this in this area where you want to perceive media as this big bad. And yet we got into this big discussion about, well, how bad could they be? Because in a world without media, we would be blissfully ignorant. And I don't perceive that as a good thing either. So there's not really an answer to anything that he's saying. It's really just reactions on this. And they're very deadened reactions, which ends up as a very numb album. And when your whole focus is driving towards something that's numb, it's very hard to kind of get behind. It's just an inherent problem with his otherwise powerful vision here. I guess that maybe I was hasty to say that we are interpreting it quite differently, but I think the thing here is, is that I'm more forgiving of that vagueness than you are, is the only difference. Um... Which, I mean... Which apparently is worth a whopping point one. Apparently. But I think that, truthfully, he... But I think that he wanted that. I think, not necessarily whatever our rating is, he probably doesn't care what our rating is, but uh, I think that what he's trying to do here is be somewhat vague, because he wants people to think and debate. And if that's the goal, he accomplished it, at least to a point. I agree with what you said about the album cover as well. The album cover is very much a precursor to everything that is going on here. It's a numb cover for a, a numb album with yeah. um, with hints of, of beauty and the unsettling. Which is a great artistic choice. For better or for worse, it definitely works overall as far as his artistic choice goes. Um, wow, we went a lot longer on this record than I thought we would. And uh, I just have a short discussion to come up with. Um, to come up with, you mean you have? Not to come up with, to, to, well, he to has go discussed. into. As far as we know, he hasn't come up with it yet. Come um, on, improvise. No, the, the problem where passion gets in the way of ability, especially when we, we get to artists that we know have and will and can and are better than the, some of the things that they've done. Um, as in? 
well, one of my favorite choices is the one I it's didn't have. A lot of vague to, verbs you had there. No, the one of my favorite choices is the one I didn't have to review, and that's Flying Lotus and his ability uh, to make music is severely hindered with his passion for his music at times. He's very self-absorbed in his creation. By the way, he has a new song out. It's on Spotify. Uh, by the way, I think I told you that earlier. No, I listened to it at work a few weeks ago. So oh, you, I'm you sorry. Know. Was it any good? Oh, you too. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but, but some of his ideas were just... We all love Putty Boy Strut now. Yeah, yeah we do. That's true. Some of his ideas were, were really, really, really good, and they at length were terrible. <laughs> When he got down to it, it was just hard to listen to some of his stuff. Well, that's why I made the analogy of the, of the paper anyway, because of the fact that a, a term paper, which people expect to, especially a dissertation, a major dissertation, which can be at length up to like 50 pages of material, is obviously expected to be fluid front to back. It's meant to be persuasive. It's meant to have this sort of driving motion. Um the academic community really wouldn't accept anything less. And if it falters somewhere over the course of these 50 pages, which uh, is very likely to happen, yeah. considering it's 50 pages, then it, your work will suffer, your point will suffer. So albums, obviously, are not quite to that extent. Still, they become the standard. It is expected that as a musician, you can't just get away with having perfect moments or perfect songs. There needs to be that long-form drive. And it does give you so much opportunity to explore various things. It gives you an opportunity to explore ideas, to tinker around with them. But at every single turn, you run this risk of kind of derailing and having a little too much fun in one area, or perhaps the opposite end, getting a little bit too bored in one area by your own idea. Hence, we get so much repetition on albums. Repetition that presumably sh you should be able to just groove into, but that's a gamble. That's mm. dependent upon taste. There's also um, tropes. Tropes we've talked about almost some of them, maybe even a hundred episodes ago at this point, um, where you just you go hot, too hard too fast. The the passion, passion, all sensitive. rise, yeah, all, all rise. rise. But just the idea of, of trying to be too quick in co conveying one idea into something else. Because you know you want to say, well, this is love, this is love. But you don't give it time to build up. Oh, then my you mistake. From, it's not all rise. That would be just... No, no, no. It's love, love, love. Yeah, that would be no, sensitive, no rise. Sensitive, sensitive passion, to well, coin myself. Like, it's... You, you can... That would be you, all you climax. Wanna, there you go. You want to do something. You want to convey a certain emotion or a certain idea, and you just don't know how to, in Steve's own words, fluidly do this. That was one of the so things you were harping on. To the paper fluid, analogy, fluid, fluid. that would be like cutting straight away to your conclusion or repeating your conclusionary paragraph over and over and over and over throughout your entire paper. That, I mean, there's only so many ways you can make your point strongly by simply saying it. You need to kind of build toward it, and that's the, that's the, the challenging artistic um, process that, that artists have to kind of grapple with. Well, yeah, well, it's this idea also that some artists are content to just put out the same smut over and over again. I mean, while I would like to believe that Steven Tyler isn't completely destroyed by drugs and actually has a knowledge of music, and I like Aerosmith. I've kind of always liked Aerosmith. But their newer records are so formulaic because they're Aerosmith and they can get away with it and people will buy it. So their passion or lack of passion has 
given a given way to repetitiveness. Whereas on the same, the a different side of the same coin, ACDC, who I also love, puts out the same stuff over and again, but they're so passionate about everything they do that it kind of has this wash of just heavy rock. I don't think Aerosmith is not passionate anymore. I think they just want to keep conveying the same meanings over and over again. Whereas ACDC explores some different meanings, but kind of stays within the same formula. But they're also, like, I mean, they're ACDC. They can do that, and they've gotten away with it for so long, people kind of expect it. You know, but it... I think it's, it's it, more forgiving of old bands, whereas newer bands, like, for example, Flying Lotus, even though he's been around a little while, is still relatively new in the scheme of things, is already so conceited in his own work, and with good reason, because some of it is actually pretty technically incredible. He gets so caught up in it that he, the intricacies get lost on him, because he doesn't care. Which, I mean, if you're the artist and you're putting it out, you don't care what anyone else thinks, the more power to you, I guess. But the idea is as an artist to find a balance between what you love and what fans want. You know, the idea that you want to you want there to be some fan service, but you also want to fulfill yourself. Right. And I think um I think style is another thing to really factor in here because you hold in on such uh, rock personalities. I'll just take this another way because what we're talking about today is something that's almost close to a concept album. I don't want to quite go so far with that because there's not this sort of continuous narrative, but we do have that overall idea. You know, just to have an idea doesn't have to be a concept album, but sometimes concept albums get to get away with a little bit more because there's just this this idea that obviously they're linked, especially if yeah. it's a narrative, it has to be linked. So in many ways, you'd expect almost to, to visualize a concept album as being as being more impactful anyway, just because it's a concept album. I can remember when uh, the Decemberists released their first concept album, which was uh, Hazards of Love. It was interesting because Decemberists kind of already have this, this, this concept to their entire persona, and that is this drive toward the, you know, the, the quirky little eccentricities surrounding... Um, 19th century life surrounding immigrant life surrounding Irish folk surrounding all these uh, things that we might perceive today as quaint and it's so apparent in their music in their dress style that it they as I said I think it very recently in a recent episode it, I, I said it, it is indicative of this whole indie folk style it is it is the um, it is the archetype in many ways for it so, when they came across, came along and, and released the concept album, Hazards of Love, of course it was going to be highly rated. And that's why, for many reasons, it's not really my favorite Decemberist album. It's good. It's, at some points, great. But sometimes it lacked that individual, uh, that individualistic cohesion because it felt the need to constantly just drive along. And that's the one thing where, where albums really do get to explore beyond what I said before is the, um, the term paper analogy. They get to explore different things along the line without having this continuous through line. In many ways, they can be more artistic for doing so, because otherwise, they would just do opus after opus after opus. And sometimes, at least if you have an epic to work with, it's very easy to write the varying... Uh, songs or chapters that coincide with the stages of that epic. But if you're talking about a theme and something vague, it's so much more challenging. 
It can be, and it sometimes isn't. It depends on the concept album. I mean, there are concept albums that are concept as in in what they're conveying content-wise, where the sound can be a little looser. Um, a concept album that just came out very recently is MC Fernalot's Question Bedtime, which is structured on its basis level as a kid's album about Questioning authority. Right. And, and, and the, the funny thing is there are several skit tracks on the record that he's talking to a comedian or personality like they're a child that he's babysitting, but they are talking like an adult and mentioning their age, being 30 and this and that, but still has that dichotomy of, you know, this, this, he's, these people are questioning bedtime and he's the babysitter, you should go to bed, filtered with songs that are taking fairy tales and turning them on their heads. Some of them are direct interpretations, like Billy Goat's Gruff, which he does is a song called Much Chubbier from the perspective of the three goats and the troll. But he also does a song like, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the track now, but it's about Goldilocks. But instead of the bears trying to eat Goldilocks because she ate all their porridge, the concept is Goldilocks is a bear murderer and you should keep your doors closed or she'll sneak in and kill you and your family. And it's this idea of taking these fairy tales, fracturing them a bit, but still linking it with a through line of these, he's still a babysitter trying to get these kids to go to sleep. And all these songs are different bedtime stories that he's told featuring other artists. See, that's interesting, but that also hones in on, on how a, a concept album, as you just described, it, that pretty much has this set thesis from yeah. the beginning. It was, it was apparent. It was... It was just inherently bound not to fail in many ways because the thesis was pure. It was solid. So as I think, a result, okay, you have here's here's a concept album that didn't have it, and that was Uno, which was supposed to be a punk revival album. Oh come on, that it is not a concept more, album. No, that was the concept that Billy was going for. That's a, no, that see, that's just a theme. That's it's a theme. The that's thing. not a concept album. No, that's where that's where it's the idea of he was so enthusiastic. I'm bringing it back to the main topic. He's so enthusiastic of trying to get back to his roots here. He's still thinking he's a punker. Still thinking Green Day is a punk band. He didn't realize Billy Joel, Mike, and Trey did not realize they are no longer punk rockers. They weren't from American Idiot, from 21st Century Breakdown. That, those weren't punk albums. The whole passion of what they were doing, the whole concept of that album was, of the trilogy was, before, during, and after party experience. And it was set within the theme work of punk. And it was just undefined. They didn't know what they were doing with it. They were just making the same stuff they knew that they could make and throwing in lyrics that they were trying to convey a story with. So this idea that the passion for their own music they, was so strong that yes, they buried themselves. they wanted themselves. the original. They wanted that first taste all over again, and it just didn't work out. It, like, just, it, it just, they could not get it out, right? I feel like any artist, though, that goes back to try and make lightning strike twice in the same place is doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. Because if you're so focused on your past, you can't see your future. And it's cliche, but it's true. If you focus so hard on your own past and going back to your roots without incorporating anything you've learned, you are doomed to fail. You need to incorporate what's new with what's old to return to what's old. All right, well, John wants to talk about this, this, this idea of passion in music that does kind of equate to what I was saying about a concept album. And I still want to make that distinction between a concept album and simply an album 
that may be varied that has a good solid theme okay again today's album i'm still pretty sure is just an album with a good solid theme yeah i wouldn't when you say this album is a concept album right but when you incorporate the idea of, of of passion for one's work i do think that there is an inherent um truth that a concept album a true concept album will be the theme that was unified and driven by passion front to back because otherwise it wouldn't have been so organized to begin with for us to even call it a concept album in other words anything we call a concept album is really just an idea that was pursued with passion extensively it doesn't mean that they can't fail but it means they are less likely to fail because the passion is driving the work along with the cohesion of the idea because they seem to be more married in concept albums still doesn't negate my my uh statement before that i think that's easier to do in some sense because once you've gone sort of balls to the wall with the specific narrative then you no longer have to deal with the individual problems that you that might rise on a regular theme-driven album that ha that still has separate tales pertaining to a specific overall thing concept album would be more unified to begin with but a regular album with a theme is just disparate and still you have to peer into it and find the connections that needs to be done on the artist level and then again on the listeners level i actually want to revisit this discussion of concept albums because i think we need to really further define what those words mean what also has to do with just whether the artist has stated it as such that's not in it coming out that's not a hundred percent true though because an artist could say one thing, and it could just come off as not what they said. But it, it happens. It might, but because of how artists are interviewed, usually it's taken to its word. Mm. But I think I that, would I would really like to revisit that song. But I think that that Steve's statement here is a good gateway to where we're coming from and to that potential future topic. It it's true that that if you're driven by this passion in that concept, you could execute it better than most. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the irony in today is that the 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 passion for this project was what <laughs> happened to be aimed at a at a an environment that he felt was deprived of passion. Yeah, ironic. Which came well, no, it 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 came across as non-passionate passion. Yes, yes, I think that's a genre, which is really freaking hard to do. Now. Um, the so, non-passionate passion. So quickly before we uh, we get to next week's stuff, um, typically I would go to Steve for spam mail, but this week we actually have a fan who wrote us a comment on our episode with Molly. Oh, no, I have to drop my sarcastic voice. I'll uh, try to do you justic justice. Yeah, there <laughs> I'll you try go. Try to do you justice, Eric. Got my uh, consonants confused. Matt, Canadian folk is my jam. Some Canadian folk that you guys need to check out before the once is Stan Rogers. He was the guy for Canadian maritime folk music. It was his version of Made on the Shore, which was on the once's album, that was the inspiration for the version the once did, as he just said. Also check out the Whalen Jennies. Yep, that's right, the Whalen Jennies for beautiful three-part harmonies. They tend more toward bluegrass and gospel than maritime folk, but it's all still there. Also great are Madison Violet and Sheik Gamine. I firmly believe that Canada has the best folk music in the world right now. 
Additionally, when you guys were calling songs in 3-4, they're more accurately 6-8 since the melodic phrasing lands on every other group of three. Fair point. I, Fair love, point. How, I love how he nerded out with you on that one. He did nerd and out, and I was very pleased with it. And as far as Canada having better folk than anywhere else in the world, I think that's mostly because uh, hipsters tend to go north for the summer. <laughs> Really, and, and like birds flock south, and hipsters. No, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm making a little bit of a joke. But Montreal and other areas around there have huge, huge indie hipster populations. I mean, it's. I'm not doubting you. I mean, you, you, it's like you can't even drive the streets at times. They're just flocking there. Well, anyway, Eric, to comment on that point. Uh, I actually did look. I believe I, I don't recall exactly what I said, but I remember at least two songs on that album. Nell song. Nell's song, I would argue, is in 3-4, because I think the, the pulsing and the melodic phrasing still lands it on, on a group of three. But uh, I don't recall what I had said in the podcast, but the track, what will, what will You Be Building, I think that is definitely in 6-8. But it may kind of throw you off with one measure of 3-8 now and then, and then returning it to 6-8. It has this little, uh, little, little hiccup to it. I think you'll, you'll notice. I, I did not notice that last uh, a couple weeks ago. So thank you for pointing that out, and we'll definitely check out those bands. Maybe we'll find something we want to review on the podcast in the future. Um, John, what are you bringing us next week? Next week, okay, I was trolling around on various media programs, and I was trying to find something a little bit different because I think we're getting a little bit heavy in, in rock and indie and all those sort of things. So I found a post-metal, post-rock instrumental band. Oy. Don't oi me. They are set and setting with the album A Vivid Memory. Which just came out this month. Uh, September. I believe this week. Oh, okay. So Maybe the second, but it might have been uh, the ninth. What was that genre again? Post-metal rock instrumental. A a five-piece band. Interesting. Lovely. Um, Ensemble, because they don't sing. That's to look forward to next (laughs) week. Thank you, John. Um, as always, please check us out on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, on the YouTubes. We are currently working on putting out more content. Um, stuff is in the works. I did tease my collaboration with Shape for the Dark Lord. Well, his song anyway. I still don't believe he's real. Um, and making a music video for his song, Blue I'm a Ghost, starring Luigi in his game, Luigi's Mansion. Um, I'm working on that project currently, so you will see it when eventually it comes out. I will not give you a release date and... Uh, when things happen, yeah, that will happen. When things happen, everyone will know. Um, but thank you, Eric, for your comment. Um, please continue to comment on the website. Send us emails, um, admin at crashcords.com for any questions, comments, or concerns if you don't want to post directly on the site. Um, we are, of course, always taking requests, um, preferably in the newer vein. But if there's an old album that you feel warrants us checking out that maybe went under the radar, please let us know. Um, And on that note, I will wrap things up by saying, as always, music is life and And life life is is good. good.